Alright, welcome to another episode of Morelia Python Radio. And tonight we're talking with Justin Lander, and we're gonna be talking about his new book, Complete Knobtail Gecko. Um, I, I have read it. It is an excellent book. Uh, he co-authored it with uh, Michael Plank. And um, I guess if you're into, uh, <laughs> what do you call them, Owen? Geckos Nobbies. with little, no, no, no. no. Geckos with little, um, God damn it. <laughs> now I don't remember. Yeah. Now, now I'm gone. Yeah. Sorry. So, uh, so, so Justin, uh, this is his, well, so we have the complete carpet, mm-hmm. the, the green tree book, mm-hmm. uh, the complete children's Python, and now the complete knobtail gecko. And I know they're hard at work on the next, the more complete. The more complete carpet. carpet. So it's like, what, it's, <laughs> it's like his fourth, fifth book at this point. I mean, like at this point, he's yeah, filling man. a library. Yeah. So I, uh, welcome to the show, Justin. Are you like, uh, Thanks, guys. are you, are you dialed in now with the like book writing? Is it like, <laughs> uh, not, you can churn them out every couple of years or what? I'm I'm just a glutton for punishment, I guess. <laughs> you got to stop being interested in different reptiles. So I don't have to write a book about them, to learn about them, or something. Um, yeah, I, I it's a uh, it's kind of a labor of love, I guess. You know, you mm-hmm. you get you get kind of keyed into a to a topic or or get really interested in a group of of animals, and the more you learn, you're like, well, this information needs to be out there. So I guess it's it's a little bit of a sense of duty maybe is that <laughs> weird to say but you know to to get the information out there so people uh can can understand them a little better can kind of see into their natural history and i think if i think that's kind of the key if you understand an animal's natural history it it really helps you uh to do a better job of keeping them in captivity so that's you know i guess yeah. the little uh, attempts at altruism here trying to get get some good information so people can do good by the reptiles <laughs> i find myself when i i was reading this book in particular um i would um you know go through it and i'm reading the natural history section and then i sort of got to like the care and then like to the morphs and it was like okay i read that but then i'm going back and reading the natural history <laughs> section again you know? yeah it's like it just it's weird how i've uh progressed as a keeper where i would flip to the morph section first in the past and <laughs> you know see uh, that's that's why i get co-authors so they can write that stuff oh yeah they do all the they do all the boring <laughs> stuff yeah <laughs> that's it. Okay. Uh-huh. i like to write about the natural history and so that's you know mainly what i do is i read papers and try to you know put it into a digestible form in, in the natural history chapters for the species accounts and um so that's kind of my my the thing i get most excited about is is reptiles in nature you know doing the things they do and kind of right. And so it's it's a little bit, you know, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants, uh, you know, just kind of taking things that other people have done, other people's work and, and putting into a to a form where people might get some glean some information from it. Not that they couldn't necessarily do that with with the papers, but uh, some of the papers get you know a little technical and, and others maybe are a little dry. And so it's kind of hard to hard to get through them and, and a lot of people don't have access to them so that's another mm-hmm. you know benefit of being an employee at a university is i have a large library with access to things and if we don't have it at the library then the library will go and get it for me so that's pretty nice and i don't have to pay anything you know i just say hey i want this article and, and i probably shouldn't say that out loud 
hey, you know, get... Free, get me this paper. <laughs> I was about to say, like, it, there's, there's no, like, you know, there's no part of your department that are like, why are you getting all these reptile paper? Shiloh's <laughs> like, you know, I need these for classes. <laughs> like, it's like... <laughs> well, and I'll say, too, like, um, if, if you if you're interested in the paper and you want a paper, I mean, authors are really uh, interested in getting their work out. So if you email an author and say, Hey, I'm really interested in reading your paper. They'll be like, here's a PDF. You know, they'll send it to you. You don't have to necessarily go through the journal or the, you know, the, the paywalls or whatever that make you pay for an article. You can go to the author directly. And sometimes you can go to one of the, you know, not the necessarily the first author or the last author. You can go to one of the middle authors and say, Hey, can I get a copy of that paper? Uh, That latest uh, shine paper on Mm -hmm. uh, Darwin carpets eating cane toads. Um, I contacted uh, Rick Shine and and asked him if I could get a copy of it, and he said, uh, "Well, it's not published yet, so I'll give you a copy, but don't share it." You know, so you know they're they're pretty willing to right. to share their work, and and that's part of you know being an author is you want your information out there, you want your published data out there. So if people ask me about my you know virology papers, I usually you know send them out a copy, a PDF copy of my papers. So. I like that idea—the free cool. exchange of information. You know, yeah, that's yeah. how it should yeah. be, really. And a lot of journals are actually going to uh, the the uh, open access model, and so there's there's some journals that are strictly open access. So if you publish, it's it's uh, available immediately online. So um, PLOS One was kind of one of those big first journals that was open access, and so all their papers are immediately available to anybody who's interested in reading them online. So that's, that's kind cool. of a nice thing. And it's, yeah, yeah I mean, you, you have to pay more as an author. If you, I, I don't know if anybody knows this, but when you publish a research article, you actually have to pay like uh, sometimes several thousand dollars to publish your article, which is kind of a, a weird thing. You know, the journals aren't paying you to to publish your data. So um, and on top of getting funding to do the research, you also have to have funding to publish the research in a lot of cases. And sometimes these open access journals actually co- charge more to publish, but then it's available freely to everybody. So, and, and a lot of times, you know, grants and, and different contracts have uh, stipulations in there for paying for, you know, publications and things like that. So it's not too bad, but yeah, another thing that's, you know, they're, they're paying good money to get it out there. So they want to get everybody to read it. that They can. <laughs> yeah. I would imagine if you do all that work, you're sort of like trying to, uh, you know, prove something out or, you know, uh, you want people to know about it. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, that's kind of, you know, a large part of this is just, and, and, and also one of the limitation to the, the books and and my uh, efforts in the natural history areas is if there's not a lot of uh, information published on a species, then Mm -hmm. it's, it's really hard to write much about their natural history. And so you have to dig a little deeper and look into, you know, other accounts, you know, maybe, uh, field surveys just to kind of see where they're at or you know maybe if there's a there there might be a small note of natural history so you're wading through a lot of literature to write a paragraph you know <laughs> like you might get one sentence out of a whole paper and you spent you know a couple hours reading that paper and then and then all you have to show for it is a sentence so you know a lot of effort goes into that whereas you know the care section or the or the uh um, morph section or something you can write mm-hmm. the care you can just basically sit down and write that because you know it's right. how you know how difficult is it to breed a carpet python for the most part um so you know there's it's it's uh 
it's a little bit of a, a work uh, to to get that information out and to tease it out. And there's some papers that are harder to track down than others. You know, some you'll find a reference for, but you can't for the life of you find the actual paper. <laughs> and uh, I, I think I've told this story before, but during the writing of the Carpet Python book, the first edition, we um, I, I actually requested um, Gavin Bedford's thesis, maybe it was his, it could have been his or, or another one. And they actually sent me the thesis from Australia. And so sent it to me directly. And my, my library kind of got mad at me for getting it <laughs> not through them, you know, so there wasn't, you know, much accountability on their part. So they were like, Hey, don't do that again. <laughs> so I just, uh, got the, got the thesis and I had to scan it, scan it in page by page and then sent, sent the original back to Australia. And I think the library even sent it back for me. So there's like, yeah, I don't know how you did this on your own, but don't do it again. <laughs> I thought I, I thought I was requesting it through the library and then all of a sudden it winds up in my mailbox. I'm like, okay. <laughs> but I got what I wanted. I don't understand what the problem is. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it was like, you know, getting, a rare gem in the mail or something. You're like, this is awesome. There's a lot of good information. Uh, Gavin did a lot of cool work for his uh, dissertation. So I, I, I think when we were, we were herping with him in Australia and he said that like, I think one of the pages in his dissertation, Wait, no. oh, that's, <laughs> that's not allowed. Just, no, 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 no. I'm just saying like, <laughs> isn't that pretty cool that you can say that? I can, but I, I agree. But there's right. certain times Eric has to stop me before I'm like, remember that time we did this? And you're like, that's, that was not supposed to be on arrow. And oh. <laughs> I was, I was worried it was one of those moments. And I was just no, like, no, Oh no, no, really? No, he, he told me that in his dissertation, there was like a page where he mentioned how all the different carpets that he was monitoring, like died or something in weird freakish yeah. ways. And he just kind of went this whole thing. I'm like, really? And then he just started telling me, all the cool shit that was in there. And I'm like, I, I, I kind of want to get a copy of it to read it. <laughs> like, I kind of want to read through it now. Yeah. So that's awesome. Yeah. Is that and the I, one where he cooked? I, I look, cooking this that was one of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 They did some, some interesting studies for sure. Probably were, I, I don't know if they'd be uh, acceptable these days. You know, the ethics and <laughs> some of those things that, you know, that they were, could get away with back in the eighties or nineties. But, um, isn't, isn't Gavin just a cool guy? Like he's, yeah, one of, I love it. Uh, yeah. he's just, he's just really cool. I really, uh, enjoyed it. And anytime I got to hang out with him, it was like, I was just hanging on his every word. Like he's, yeah. Yeah, he's the man, you know what I yeah. mean? Like that, that's the kind of guy I'd, I could hang out with for a long time and just listen to his stories and hear about, uh, the work he's done. Uh, he's just, done done so much cool stuff so yeah it was kind of uh you know it's a weird experience i would imagine for him you know meeting three or four guys from america um, <laughs> all at, at once bar yeah. in australia yeah. at the bike crocosaurus cove and yeah. like, and then you know once we started just talking then he's like oh okay these guys are pretty cool you know yeah and, and yeah. like I, I me and owen are just sitting at the table just like listening not saying a word and the keith, keith are just there. having conversations <laughs> we're just like we're not worthy yeah not thank god worthy. keith was there to talk to him otherwise we would have just been staring at him and that would have been awkward <laughs> <laughs> but he's awesome so I mean, he's so down to earth too like I, yeah, I, I yeah. That's, that's kind of a I, I don't know if i'd say it's a rare thing but i mean there's not many academics that that uh you know there's some some uh i guess 
hesitance to to deal with people who are in the reptile trade. You know, they kind of see yeah. that as as a risky avenue. But sure. to have somebody who's who's got a PhD in herpetology and and who you know is so knowledgeable and done so many things, but he's also you know kind of kept a kept a, a you know foot in the the trade to some extent, where he you know he and John came up with that you know the what what's a uh, their python ranch the mm. um, oh, the snake ranch snake ranch yeah i mean that was that's pretty cool to have have two guys of that caliber and john john weigel's another guy that's just really cool and just down to earth fun to hang out with so i hope i'm not following in his footsteps basically leaving reptiles and going into uh into birding but <laughs> <laughs> Those, those darn feathered reptiles it's almost as addicting as herping as birding but i guess as, yeah. as long as it's cold and snowy i'm okay with uh, birding right. but as soon as it yeah. warms up I'm, I'm looking for reptiles i might <laughs> i might see a couple birds incidentally but it's going to be the focus on reptiles. we're not after those that's just, that's just a happy coincidence yeah yeah, yeah. but it's as long happy. as you're out there looking you might as well yeah, it's fine. all of the nature right have, have you run into problems like researching books where like some people maybe almost uh like turn your nose up at you because you're uh, actually just a reptile like hobbyist or keeper i mean i i, I haven't had too much of that that i can mm -hmm. remember anyway i i uh we actually sub uh, submitted the books to herp review which is is a, a kind of a, a really cool reptile publication it's kind of has a lot of shorter uh, articles and smaller notes on um, observation. So like anybody can publish an observation in Herp Review, but we, we sent the books into one of the editors of Herp Review and they did a, a little uh, piece. It was actually after the complete uh, children's Python book came out and they reviewed both of them in, the, in one issue. So that was kind of mm -hmm. cool, but it, it seemed to get some, you know, favorable reviews. It seemed like the herpetologist who, uh, the person who reviewed it uh, was pretty favorable. I think they had a couple issues, but uh, nothing too major. I'll have to pull that out and refresh my memory. But it seemed like they had like said something that was like, and and I didn't really agree with what they you know, they were saying. <laughs> I, I don't know if that's uh, fair, but you know they probably had to say something that was like, yeah, it could have been better in this way. But and and you know it's it's I mean going over it the second time and and looking at the second edition, uh, we're almost putting out a whole new book. Like it's, oh. it's so much really? different. Oh yeah. Wow. Like we track our changes, right? So we're, yeah. we're tracking the changes we make to the, to the original manuscript. And like the whole page is just red, you know, we're adding pages <laughs> to each, each chapter. So this is going to be a wow. pretty, uh, it, it, I guess you could call it the more complete uh, carpet Python, but I don't know if I want to do that or not. <laughs> I guess we, <laughs> we might, might be stuck in the model doing that, but you know, it's, it is what it is, but it should be, it should be a pretty hefty book as well. We're adding quite a few pages and, wow. and we'll have, uh, we're, we're shooting for trying to have as many new pictures as we can, maybe even all new pictures, depending on how things shake out. But so right. we're, awesome. yeah, there's just, there's just such a wealth of, of photographic documentation out there of carpet pythons and, and carpets are so uh, just diverse and have so many different looks and, and behaviors yeah. and things that have been recorded. Did you see that uh, diamond python or, or intergrade, whatever it was floating out in the ocean? Yeah. Yes. What the isn't that, hell? Isn't that cool? <laughs> like that's yeah. just, you wouldn't think of finding a carpet python out to sea, but <laughs> I guess it happens every once in a while. It makes you wonder what happened with that thing. <laughs> Why was out swimming? But, Kind of cool. Yeah.
cool observations here. I love that kind of stuff. How did you get here? Why? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Not, not a very common thing, I'm sure. But, uh, yeah. There was a video not too long ago where they had an inland carpet, um, doing the same thing. I wasn't out at sea, but it was, it was in the, in, in a lake. Some, a lake or something like yeah. that. The guys were on the boat and they're just yelling, look, it's a snake, it's a snake. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, it's an inland carpet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I, there's a, a video on YouTube of a, a guy out in somewhere in inland territory, but he, there were two of them out there and he was like catching both. I mean, he's kind of dramatic, you know, the, the, tr- the typical kind of Steve Irwin, Ask, uh, you know, right. drink, oh, gotta grab these, and you know, he's wrestling them in the water in the pond or something. But it was like a flood zone or something, and they were making their way through the flood zone. I thought that was pretty cool to see a carpet python swimming through there. So, oh, wow. yeah, it's really cool looking. I'll have That's to remember, cool. but it's like a guy, he had kind of a uh, Steve Irwin type show or something that he was trying to get off the ground, or maybe had, I don't know, but he had a few videos on YouTube kind of in the same vein where he was, uh, you know, picking stuff up out the road or, or in a, in nature, you know, and talking sure. about it and stuff. So right. pretty cool. Fun time. Yeah. So, what, yeah. so, so, so what made you want to write a book about knobtail geckos? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've, I've been fascinated by knobtails, uh, for, for a very long time. I, I'm, I'm trying to think if I was into knobtails before carpets or around the same time, I, I might've, been more interested in knobtails before I was into carpet pythons, but um, they're just—I mean—that bizarre look. They just have such a look that's just so unique in in, in lizards. Um, so you know, I was immediately attracted to them, and I, I kept some—you know—quite uh, a few uh, uh, Nefertis levis, uh, levis, the the three striped knobtail, um, back in you know the early two thousands. Uh, there was a local guy that had, had bred some. And so I picked some up from him. And then I, after that, I kind of got excited about him and I had, you know, up to around 20 individuals at one time back in the early two thousands, I got, I had a breeding loan, you know, a guy sent me a bunch of them and we produced quite a few of them for, for a few years, but with grad school, um, my, it was just hard. Lizards are a lot more work than snakes and yes. they're not conducive to grad school. So <laughs> I've, I've had a few different species here and there. I've, I've bred uh, the, the Wheeler eye that actually synced us now. Um, so they split the Wheeler eye complex geckos into two separate species. Nefera synctus, which is the northern species in the Pilbara and the southern species is the Nefera's Wheeler eye. So um, or wheelery. <laughs> oh no! Sure. Oh Scott, no! It's one of those again. <laughs> Scott's gonna yell at me or something for pronouncing it wrong. But um, so anyway, that you know, I, I kept the synctus for for a while and then produced a couple of those, and then uh, I've kept Amy I. Amy, Amy, I, um, for <laughs> a, a couple different pairs of those, but I, I've only gotten a, a bad egg once. And, and, uh, just, uh, I think this, the first time I got them, I got an older pair and they just never really established and, um, and, uh, didn't last too long with me. And then the next group I got, I lost my male. So I sent a couple females over to Steve Sharp. And so, um, but you know, I've just really, I, I think the, the Centralian knobtails or Nephros amiae are probably my favorite species of lizard, uh, uh, other than maybe a Parenti or, <laughs> you know, Pilbara yeah. uh, rock monitor or something. Yeah. That I really like that orange, you know, that and from Central Australia, you know, their habitat is just fantastic. And 
just one of the coolest geckos out there. So that was kind of probably what got me into them. And then some of the other species are a little easier to keep and breed. So I started out with those and a little less expensive at the time. And so, but now I, I, right now I just have a uh, pair of Amier. Um, I've got a, and a, a few uh, uh, Nephris vertebralis, which are the midline knobtails. And those are, those have been doing really well. And then I recently picked up a trio of Nephris wheeleri, which are the Southern uh, banded knobtails, the rough banded knobtails that are, um, I got from Casey Lazic. Uh, I bought those off of him uh, a few months ago. Oh, so cool. I haven't, uh, I'll, I'll get a chance to breed those here in the spring or summer. So they're really cool looking, but I love the face reticulations on those things, but just a cool group of geckos and have some really interesting, uh, natural behaviors and, and, uh, you know, pretty big variety of, of appearances and looks and colors and patterns and all sorts of stuff. So kind of like the carpets, they're very variable and have several different species. And so, uh, a cool avenue to, to d- dive into. Yeah, I, uh, I'm with you. I, I, I think my favorite is the Amy Eye for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's hard to beat those as far as impressive and coloration. Yeah, that, that outline and that color on their head. Yeah. yeah it's, it's, oh, it's also really cool because it's like each one is really distinct yeah. from each other. Yeah. It's not like uh, you'll get a leopard gecko from this place and a leopard gecko from this place. They pretty much look the same. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So I, as after I, you know, I kept a few species and, and I, uh, after I met Steve Sharp and when we started kind of hanging out and, and, uh, uh, kind of formed a loose business partnership type thing. And, and, uh, and he was kind of the, the lizard guy. He was, he was really good with the knobtails and produced quite a few different species. And so, you know, after I'd, uh, done the carpet in the children's book, we'd, we'd talked about doing a, a knobtail book. And so, right you know, that's kind of what got, got us on the path. And then, um, later on, he, uh, he kind of, um, got out of keeping for a while. He, he's, he's in the zoo. Um, uh, that's his field and, you know, he's working at at a zoo. And so, um, it's, it's tricky when you're working for the zoos, uh, with, you know, keeping species, especially Australian species where some have kind of a dubious, uh, past to to say the least. And so, um, he, he wanted to kind of steer clear and make sure everything was above board and there was no questions about, you know, his private collection and things like that. And so he ended up just not keeping any, um, reptiles. And so, um, he got rid of all his animals and then, um, you know, as a result of that, he said, you know, he, he didn't know if, uh, um, it would be the best idea to kind of write a book for, you know, for the pet trade type, type thing. And so, um, unfortunately he, he had to back out of, uh, writing it with me. And that was, you know, I, I was sad to see him go cause I really wanted to publish the book with him cause I, mm-hmm. I really like his, uh, insights and, and, uh, the, the knowledge that he had was, you know, great. And so, um, you know, I kind of, um, was scrambling to find a, a replacement, uh, co-author and, and Mike Plank is, uh, he's, I mean, he's probably bred more species than anybody in the U S I would say, or, or at least established more species than, than a lot of people in the U S and just 
has done a wealth of work with the knobtail geckos and, and, and a lot of other species as well. And he's pretty down to earth. He's kind of like a, a Southern California surfer dude, you know, he's got that <laughs> laid back attitude, you know, he's, he's a, a just cool guy. So, um, he was, he was nice enough to say he'd, he'd uh, ride it with me. So that was really cool. So I got to benefit from his, um, knowledge in, in regards to husbandry and keeping them and, and things like that. So, yeah, he okay. definitely uh, added a, a nice uh, uh, addition to the to the book for sure. So I was fortunate to have him say yes to, to do it. So and he's been fun to work with and, you know, talk with on the phone and stuff. So it's, from that aspect, it was really cool, too. That's but, cool. Yeah. I like that idea. Yeah. I didn't realize how many how big the the complex of I mean, there's the the there's the rough knobtail geckos, uh, the, you know, the the banded knobtail geckos, the smooth knobtail geckos, the thin-tailed uh, nefura species, and the uh, underwater uh, underwater. <laughs> <laughs> like, holy shit! Oh, dude, I need That's this. My Philly coming out. Oh my Ooh. god, I, I haven't read it yet, but holy Under- crap! <laughs> like, that's my Philly. Sorry, yeah. Scott. <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know what i'm talking about (laughs) what the hell um yeah i i I just didn't realize that there i don't know for some reason i thought there was like five and then i opened the book and i'm like wait a minute (laughs) this keeps going yeah yeah Yeah, it's kind of funny anytime you get more into a species like you might see like a a jungle carpet or, you know, something, and, and you think, Oh, carpet pythons, those are cool. And, you know, you think, okay, carpet pythons. And, and then you get into it more and more and you realize, okay, there's all these different subspecies and some are mm-hmm. species and some are putative species. You know, there's, there's all this, yeah. uh, you know, the, the, there just gets to be more and more layers as you delve deeper. And so, you know, most people probably think, Oh, bearded dragons, there's the central bearded dragon that's that's it but there's you know many different species of bearded dragon and many different species of leopard gecko and you know the more you get into a a different complex or group the more you you know you can learn and see you know all the diversity and cool uh different species and and things like that whereas when you first get into it it's just kind of a, a basic level so you know hopefully uh, people can see the the variety and the diversity and and kind of get to know the, the complex and so um, that was, you know, one of the goals is to introduce people to the, the, there's more species than just one or two and the, the ones you commonly see at the reptile shows and yeah, there's, there's some really neat stuff out there. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Um, and they're pretty much found most part throughout Australia, you know? Um, yeah. 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 So that, that was, uh, that was pretty cool. So, um, I know maybe this is going in the wrong direction or whatever, but maybe you do you know uh, maybe you can talk on um why what what purpose is the knobtail (laughs) (laughs) why do they have that (laughs) yeah that's that's a topic of much debate i think um so there's there's different uh ideas so so i was uh out herping in western australia um kind of in the area of pain's find and we there's this uh road i was cruising and we found probably a dozen uh of the nefaris vertebralis the midline knobtail geckos and they kind of look very similar to the uh, nefaris levis you know the the common the one that's most available in the hobby um and, and actually the the vertebralis are actually becoming increasingly um available and they're they're fairly easy to work with and breed so um but they're they're beautiful just 
some, some phenomenal red coloration on these things. They're just really cool. So I was just in heaven, just watching these things, you know, we'd stop, we'd stop every, you know, mile or so and there'd be another one. So I just chase it. My wife's like, haven't you seen enough of those? And I'm like, come on, it's a cocktail gecko. So I was, I was just, you know, just loving it. And so, um, I'm watching this one. I'm, I'm, I'm getting some film. So I'm filming it and, and, uh, as it's walking along, it's, you know, I'd, I disturbed it. So it was, I think it was looking for a place to hide or something, but I, you know, I posed it for photos and kept it from running away and stuff like that. But, and then I just kind of sat back and was filming it and I had a, you know, camera with a decent zoom. So I was kind of zooming in as long as my light could <laughs> give enough light for the camera, but, uh, and, and just watching it and walking, walking along and kind of doing its thing. And, and I noticed that it was, I actually didn't notice until I, I got back home and looked at the video on the computer, but it was using like kind of dragging its knob or using its knob almost like a finger to kind of test or, or feel different things it was walking over. So it walked over a little branch and would kind of feel it with its knob. Um, and then, you know, so it was almost like a, a sensory, you know, appendage and, and, you know, the knob itself has, is, is innervated and has a lot of different uh, blood vessels and things. So, um, it's probably very sensitive, um, for, for the lizards, you know, so mm -hmm. it, it could, you know, like a finger, you know, you get a, you get uh, stuck with a needle in your finger and it, it's very painful because you have a lot of nerve endings and blood vessels and things in your fingers. So I'd imagine it's, it's probably similar in, in some ways. So it's, most likely has a sensory function. So um, another thing that was kind of floated or is an idea on the knob, the purpose of the knob is uh, when a lot of the species will dig into the side of burrows of other animals. And so they kind of um, will, will burrow in. And then a lot of the, the smooth knob tails um, will, will plug up the entrance of the burrow to kind of maintain a, a humid atmosphere. And also, to not give away their location to predators that might be prowling through the, you know, burrow tunnels during the day or something while they're sleeping. And so a lot, a lot of times you'll see the knobtail and you can see this in captivity fairly easily because, you know, if you keep them in a, a rack system, a lot of times you'll have the clear plastic and, and they'll uh, dig their burrows and then they'll just kind of sit there in their burrows. And a lot of times they'll have their tail oriented towards the, the burrow entrance where they've plugged it up with sand. And one of the thoughts is that they keep that knob kind of at the entrance of the burrow so they can feel vibrations coming. And when they feel a vibration coming, it can mean to, you know, go further down the burrow or try to find an exit strategy or something, you know, get out of there or something. So they, the thought is that they use that to kind of sense vibrations when a predator or something is getting close. So another um, potential function for that. And then, um, another one, you know, another, I guess, sensory potential sensory function of the knob is, is to sense, you know, humidity or, or temperature. Um, so when they're, you know, getting ready to lay eggs or getting ready to kind of nest down, burrow down for the night or something, they can kind of find a suitable spot. And it's thought that maybe the tail can assist in that way as well. Um, uh, another potential would be to attract prey sometimes when they're excited or, or if they're hunting, they'll kind of wave their knob tail along. And sometimes they, they, they'll wiggle it along on the, on the dirt, on the sand, you know? So it's okay. kind, of, kind of cool to watch. It's like a cat getting ready to pounce on a mouse. You know, they'll kind of flick that tail, you know, and get excited or something. So I don't know if it's like their emotion, like they're excited to get food or if it's something to kind of, um, I don't know, either lure or, and, yeah. and there's, there's some 
thought that maybe um, depending on the type of prey, they do different things with their tail as well. And Steve and I had kind of talked about that, maybe setting up an experiment, you know, and seeing if, if they saw like a, a centipede, if they'd wiggle their tail differently or, you know, um, uh, versus like a cricket or a cockroach or something like that. But something threatening, maybe it does it this way, something appealing and food like, maybe it does it that way, like yeah. that kind of stuff. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Something. That'd be cool. Do that. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and when they're, when they're, uh, you know, have a female or something, the males, will, yeah. sometimes they'll hold their tails up and, and, you know, signal and things like that. And so, you know, you, you, it's, it's hard to, to, and, and it probably has multifunction, you know, it's mm -hmm. it probably does a lot of different things, but so it's hard to just say, yeah, it does this. But um, so those are some of the thoughts of, of what the, the purpose, the knob serves and it, it, they don't have, well, the, the shorter, you know, the bigger um, rough knob tails like the AMA and Asper and um, th those don't have a, a break like a, like a lot of lizards do kind of that, uh, fracture point where they can break part of their tail off. They don't have that, uh, for their tail. So if their tail gets chewed off, then they kind of go knobless, I believe. <coughs> Excuse me. Really? So, so like, uh, yeah. like a, a leopard gecko or someone that loses, it drops the tail. They can still recover it to a certain point. Mm -hmm. If a knob tail loses the knob, does it still kind of do the same kind of wiggling and all this stuff like that, but with nothing attached? Yeah, they might they might have some of the same behaviors, but yeah, it's it's uh, hard to wiggle the knob if there's no knob there. <laughs> so, but uh, and and there are there are quite a few like of the especially the smooth knob tail species with a little bit longer tails um, right. that will have uh, regrown tails, and so they do have a fracture point and a you know a, an autonomy plane in their tails, but uh, they don't. Um, I don't believe they grow back the knob when they grow back a new tail. And so they just kind of have, and, and it's, it doesn't have the same pattern as the original tail. So it's kind of like an ugly little blob hanging off the back of their butt. But um, so not, not quite as neat as when they have their knob tail and, and they don't often lose their tails. I think um, less than, you know, maybe uh, less than 15% of, of certain species will have tail loss. You know, they typically don't lose their tails very readily as compared with other gecko species, especially um, like, I think, you know, with like the crested geckos, uh, mm. probably 90% of the population in the wild has, has no tail, you know, and they don't grow back tails. So they're just tailless for the most, of, you know, most of the wild um, uh, crested geckos don't have tails. And then a lot of like some like the leaf tail geckos and, and the diplodac, I mean, Australia is full of cool geckos and, yeah. and a lot of those will have regrown tails, you know, that you find in, yeah. the, in the wild. And, and of course that's the strategy, you know, give up your tail and get out of there and let your predator eat the tail and then you live to grow a new tail. Right. So that's a very common uh, mechanism in geckos, but the knob tails uh, don't seem to really follow that as well. I mean, some have the ability to regrow a tail, but for the most part, they, they have their original tails when you see them in the wild. And it's probably because they're more of a predator level rather mm -hmm. than a prey level. There's a few predators, of course, that can take out a knobtail or eat a knobtail, but usually it's kind of all or nothing. If they catch them, they usually eat the whole thing because there's not a lot of a tail to <laughs> grab and be a distraction, right? So especially with like an amia that yeah. has a tiny little, you know, tail with a, no a big knob at the end. So, you know, it depends on 
on uh, the, the gecko, but for the most part, you know, that's not a, a very useful predator deterrent in the ge- in the nephrus uh, genus. And, and compared compared with some of the barking geckos, you know, the thick tail, the underwoodosaurus, um, that complex, those tend to lose their tails more frequently than the nephrus geckos do. So they they probably use their tails more to to get away from predators. And actually, it's quite frequent, maybe 50, 60 percent of wild uh, underwoodosaurus and spirus uh, geckos will have a missing tail as well. That's cool. I mean, that to think about it, like you think geckos, geckos drop tails, stuff like that. But then you think, then here's one that's not necessarily true. And I do like the uh, uh, all or nothing, like it doesn't leave pieces of the knob tail. It's yeah. either all eaten or that's it. I'm like, I got gotcha. you. <laughs> yeah, so, exactly. That's cool. You talked about herping and finding them in the wild. Mm-hmm. Have you found all of them or is there... The one that hurts you, yeah, that yeah, that's a, yeah, that's a little bit of a sore subject. Oh no! <laughs> I, I found a, a few a few species. So I found uh, Nefertis levis levis. I found a, one in kind of close to uh, Uluru or Ayers Rock in the central Australia. Um, it was kind of a rainy night, and I wasn't expecting to see a knobtail, but there was a little male out there searching for something. And and uh, I've I saw probably you know several dozen of the subspecies, another subspecies, Nefuris levis occidentalis, um, on the western coast of Australia, western Australia, kind of um, up by uh, Shark Bay, um, up above there. Shark Bay had quite a few occidentalis, as did uh, the area around Coral Bay. Um, I saw, I mean, it was almost to the point where, like, oh man, another Nefuris. No, no. <laughs> what, what am I saying? No, I'm getting out and seeing this. <laughs> And it was kind of cool because the, uh, there was a stretch um, between Exmouth and Coral Bay that I, I was driving at night. And, and we were headed down because we were doing a manta ray tour in the morning um, on, on one of the boats. And so um, my wife and I on this trip, we saw uh, a ton of these uh, Nefertis levis occidentalis or the western uh, knobtail, common knobtails. And uh, they were they were all over the place and and you know like I said I almost got sick of stopping for them but then I kind of kicked myself and said what are you talking about but there was quite a diversity and I've got a, a, a kind of a photo layout in the book and, and of some of these occidentalis specimens that were found within you know a couple miles of each other and there's quite a diversity in in appearance and color and pattern and and so it was really cool to see the diversity in in just a short area so they're quite variable at least in in that spot so that was kind of fun to see that variability in in you know the first person and not have to you know look at it from pictures or something but i can like okay i've seen these and and they're they're pretty diverse and this was within this this short space so you know that's kind of cool observation that i could make on uh on my own and then uh found you know quite a few of them in in the shark bay area with steve and uh, mike on the on the trip uh, the year later after i went with my wife um i've seen quite a few of the vertebralis but in the same area as the vertebralis is the nefarious wheeler eye and we didn't see any wheeler eye when, mm-hmm. where we and they, they basically are in the same area in slightly different habitats i've i've heard from you know mike uh, plank he told me that 
um, you know, you're, you'd be driving along and you'll see, you know, a bunch of vertebralis. And then a little while later, you'll start seeing the Wheeler eye and then it will kind of go back and forth. And um, so he said, you know, sometimes the conditions aren't right and you just see one or the other. And so I, I guess when I was there, it was vertebralis time and not Wheeler eye time. <laughs> so it's kind of hard to uh, say what, you know, what was going on. But I kept thinking maybe they're just cryptic and I'm not seeing them. But then when we went up further north in the Pilbara, I saw quite a few of the Nefertis synctus. So um, I was seeing those quite readily. And so, you know, and I was seeing the vertebralis on the, on the road as well. So I'm thinking, well, maybe they just weren't out, you know, the conditions mm-hmm. weren't right. And so that's, a, that's one, that's one way you can get, uh, you know, two geckos that are in the same genus and uh, kind of feel a, a bit of the same niche. You know, they they, they do uh, similar things, but they also um, may come out when conditions are different. So, they're, they're not in direct competition because, you know, these maybe come out when it's a little cooler or these come out, you know, when it's a little wetter or things like that. So, um, and, and a lot of times they'll have different prey. So there's an area in Western Australia where you can get um, three different species in the same spot. And they, they generally have different proportions of prey in their diet. So they'll uh, partition based on their uh, dietary preferences. So some might, you know, specialize on spiders while others are going for more uh, roaches and grasshoppers and, you know, things like that. So, and, and right. some, you know, might take a higher percentage of other geckos. Uh, the, the vertebralis actually have, have a fairly good sized portion of their diet consisting of smaller geckos. So they're kind of more of that meso predator level of, of gecko rather than they're probably one of the top predators of geckos in, in as far as uh you know the geckos go uh they not a lot of geckos eat other geckos other than some of these nefarious geckos so it's kind of cool to nuts yeah to see but um so so the vertebralis the levis 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 occidentalis and um, have I seen any other species? I think that might be it. So I haven't seen a ton. I haven't even seen an underwoodosaurus and they're fairly common in some areas. So I'm kind of bugged that I haven't seen one of those yet. Um, I looked for Amiae um, in central mm-hmm. Australia, but when I was there, it was like the wettest year on record. And so I'm really itching to get back to central Australia. I really want to go back there and have another shot at finding an Amiae and, and also a Bredeli or Bredley um, <laughs> and uh, find, find a, find one of those as well in the wild. And there's, there's a few other species in central Australia that I really want to see. I see alive at least I've, I've seen them smashed on the road, but that doesn't count. Right. Um, uh, unfortunately. And then I, I've told the story of, uh, on here of, and I think, uh, Rob, uh, recounted that in one of your recent, uh, podcasts about the, you know, herping and having the super moon mm. <laughs> ruin my, my chances of finding Asper. But yeah, I, I've looked for Asper as well and, and struck out on those a few times. But uh, yeah, the super moon didn't help. And and my kids were kind of whining because they wanted to leave. And, and you know, there were all these spiders right at face level. So they were hanging out in the car and they thought somebody was going to stop and murder them while I'm out looking for Gecko. <laughs> <laughs> I got to listen to them whine and, and went back to the car and we, we took off. But, you know, uh, I gave it a shot. And then um, I think, I, yeah, I haven't been into the uh, up, up, well, I guess we were up in Kakadu. I could have seen Shea Eye, 
which are up in, you know, up in the tropical north Australia. They're one of the further north ranging uh, geckos. Um, a lot of these, uh, a lot of the geckos covered in the book are actually fairly cold tolerant and they're found pretty far down south. And, and I haven't done a lot of trips down to this uh, more southern portion of, of the continent. I've kind of focused on stuff up north because that's where all the pythons are, right? right. Um, so I've kind of avoided some of the southerly stuff. But I think I need to go go give it a shot and try to find some of these others. Like the Pernati knobtail gecko, uh, Nephris delini, they're only found in a very small range um, centered around the Pernati lagoon. And so uh, apparently they're quite common out there and they're fairly easy to find, but it's just such a small area and small range uh, that you have to basically target that place to, to go see them. You know, you're not going to see them looking for other stuff. So um, that's one that I'll probably have to focus on. But uh, my, my buddy, Chris Cupper says he'll, he'll point me in the right direction or take me out there. Nice. If, I, if I come, you know, uh, grace grace the south with my presence right <laughs> i'm sure there's other really cool reptiles down there and, and just to hang with chris it'd be worth going down to melbourne anyway so uh one of these days i'm thinking maybe a trip from melbourne up to alice springs or something and hit you know the gammon ranges on the way that would be a cool trip. that'd be nice <laughs> yeah. that'd be cool <laughs> a lot of driving but that would be yeah cool. yeah um so are are they coming out um, basically when you know uh, right at dusk or are they uh, more into the middle of the night? Are you seeing them on the road or do you have to sort of like uh, go off the road to find them? Yeah, uh, so or it depends on species. It, it'll depend a little bit on the species as well as time of year. Um, so some if, if it's a little cooler, they'll probably be active you know earlier in the night or. When it's when it's hot, maybe later in the in the evening, uh, coming out to warm up on the road or something, and you can like like I said with that stretch between uh, Exmouth and and uh, Coral Bay, there were just Levis occidentalis all over the road, like every you know twenty feet you'd see another one or something. Maybe not that many, but um, it seemed like they were just everywhere, and and just for a short stretch, and then all of a sudden you didn't see them anymore. So sometimes it's weird where you have maybe just really good habitat or an area where they're really common in um, that you'll see them all over the road. Um, other times I've looked uh, kind of walking through the rocks and rocky habitat. And that was specifically for Shei, uh, the prickly knobtail. Um, and we, we walked up through in, into the rocky habitat looking for those. We didn't find any, unfortunately. And same kind of thing uh, when I stopped in the super moon night, I was looking on foot, you know, kind of walking through suitable habitat. You can still see them on the, on the road. Um, but the, the, uh, rough knobtails are actually pretty quick on the road. They, they run pretty fast. And I, it was a researcher, um, I think it was Dale DiNardo, that would kind of equate them to the lizard or the gecko uh, that that would make you think it was a rodent. You know, it would run so fast. And, oh, wow. <laughs> and they were, you know, so large. Yeah. That, you know, what's the, what, is that a rat? What is that? <laughs> it's a gecko. <laughs> you know, so um, they're, they're, they can be pretty fast, can, can run pretty quickly. So especially for a gecko. Um, but, uh, so I, you know, I have, I don't have any, uh, firsthand experience with the, the rough knob tails yet, but hopefully that'll be, uh, sometime in my future. But, um, you know, with the, the Wheeler eye and the synctus, um, we, I found plenty of synctus on paved roads and I've heard you can find the Wheeler eye kind of the same way. 
Um, so I, I think, you know, you, you should be able to find a, a lot of these species road cruising. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I can't think of any that would be, uh, would avoid roads or would not be found on roads. So, right. yeah, mm-hmm. you should be able to find them uh, road cruising. Um, but it, it is kind of cool to find them when you're just walking through their habitat. Uh, not that I've can say I've had that experience yet. I think I found all the knobtails I found through road cruising. So gotcha. Okay. Um, so are they, I mean, for the most part, they're kind of just hanging out in, um, the spin effects. Are they kind of like, uh, digging down? Cause I would imagine where they're from, they need to keep humid and whatnot. And that, is that what they're doing? Not cooked to death. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. That's a, that's a good question. I, I, I mean, for the, the smooth knobtail species, um, uh-huh. they, they definitely, um, We'll, we'll dig and, and burrow in and kind of close up the burrows to maintain that humid environment. Um, some, some like uh, Levisimus are, are actually dune specialists. So they'll, so they'll only be huh. found kind of on sand dunes, uh, the loose blown sand. And they'll usually uh, target like a spinifex or some other kind of shrub or bush and dig down kind of using the roots to keep that burrow system intact. So they can, you know, hide out during the day when it's hot and, uh, the, but the, the rough knob tails, um, the Wheeler eye complex and the Asper complex geckos, mm. uh, they, they're not, they don't really burrow. Um, they, they're often found, you know, in rock, uh, crevices or, or under rocks and things like that. So, um, they're a little less, uh, um, prone to, to losing that moisture through, through their uh, skin, I guess. So they, they can handle a little more dry and, and, uh, rocky conditions, I guess. So, um, but you know, with, I, I love that, uh, uh, interview you guys had with Ron St. Pierre, man, that guy, mm-hmm. he's, he's, oh, yeah. he's oh, yeah, dude, I love that one. Very knowledgeable. So I really enjoyed that, uh, episode you guys did with him. That was really cool, but he got me really thinking about, um, you know, the dew point and, and kind of that, humidity that occurs and, and, you know, in the desert, I'll be sleeping in, in the desert and I'll wake up in the morning and my tent's covered with water, you know, and I'm, right. I'm mm-hmm. in the middle of this dry, desolate, rocky desert. But, uh, so, you know, I'm sure these geckos are definitely, um, uh, benefiting from that, um, dew point that, that hits in the mornings or, or sometime in the night. And a lot of them, you know, I, I imagine they probably have mechanisms to kind of channel that water and or be able to absorb it some way, um, or or just lick it off the grass and and, and rocks and things. So um, it, it largely depends on the species, but for the most part, you can say you know the smooth knobtails are, are more burrowing species, whereas the the uh, rough knobtails are more saxicolous and live on the rocks. I, I don't know how a little gecko would would dig a burrow in the Pilbara. I mean, it, it's just like a, a rocky, like, you look at it, it's almost like it's paved, you know, just little rocks everywhere. So I don't know how they're, di- you know, unless they use the burrow of another animal, um, which, you know, they might, but I think they're probably just sheltering down at the base of a spin effects or something during the day to kind of avoid the heat. But um, they're pretty, pretty tough for how delicate they look. They're pretty tough geckos for sure. But I, I, that was one thing I wanted to do that I never really took the chance to do, but just follow around a Wheeler eye through the night or, uh, <laughs> and see where they go. You know? what it does? Yeah. Because yeah. I, 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 I couldn't don't find mind me. 
<laughs> right? I, I couldn't find any research on what they what they do or where they go or you know how they kind of survive, other than that they kind of go into rock uh, piles or rock. But I don't know. It was it would be cool to see just follow them around, see where they go. <laughs> uh, Wasn't there? Awesome. Where did I hear? I, I want to say it was Phil that was talking about somebody in Australia was studying them and they put like put these little, little backpacks, backpacks on, on yeah. them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Radio tracking. Yeah. I think that was with Asper. And so I, I'd be really curious to see that research. I looked to see if that had been published yet, but I couldn't find any publications on that subject. So uh, I should have, well, it was kind of after I, I heard about that after I I got the majority of the book done. So I didn't, uh, wasn't able to add anything to it, but I, I still couldn't find anything about it. But I, I should reach out to Phil and talk to his buddy, I guess. Uh, I did I did see somebody. With, I, I reached out to a lot of different people, so it's hard to remember who I contacted or not. But, um, you know, and that's I guess that's another aspect of writing these books is, you know, it's uh, I, I, I really just um, am, am indebted and, and grateful to people who are supplying uh, photographs and people, especially who are supplying information on natural history. I mean, uh, Brian Bush, Bush, oh man, he's like out there all the time out in the field yeah. burping. And he had some really cool, um, you know, observations that he's made on a couple of the species in, in Western Australia. I mean, the guy is, is a wealth of knowledge and it's just, he's out there all the time. I, <laughs> I wish yeah, I could man. be so lucky, man. <laughs> that's, that's a yeah. pretty, pretty cool, uh, uh, pretty cool life that guy has but um i don't think i could do the short shorts thing but <laughs> yeah you gotta, you gotta take the good with the bad if you gotta do this you gotta you wear the uniform when i see those shorts i think of like you know those those socks that had the like the three different colors that you pull off your knee you know? he, he is he is keeping that look alive that's for sure <laughs> but man more power to him he is, yeah, he is man. The, he's the man so I, hopefully i get a herp with him someday because he he seems like he'd be a, a lot of fun to herp with and and yeah. probably find a lot of good stuff too so um but yeah he supplied some really awesome photos for the book and i mean just countless others uh matt somerville he takes some really nice and jake many i mean you guys had jake on the podcast you yeah. gotta get matt on if he's willing matt's a yeah i've had yeah. a lot of good conversations with him over email man that guy he, he knows his stuff he's he spent a lot of time out in the field as well yeah. 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 This is his pick. We were just, when we we did the rough scale show uh, last night and um, yeah. when we did that, we were looking at uh, his picture he has of this beautiful uh. rough scale Python, just like <laughs> right off the rock. Right. And, you know, That's uh, like perfect. Like classic. So yeah. awesome. Yeah. He, he's, he's seen some cool stuff and got some really good photos. So, um, and, and Shane Black, I mean, Shane Black's another one that's always out in the field and finding cool stuff. And just, I mean, you should see his library of carpet photos, man. That guy oh. found so many different things. Like there's just so many cool, cool people that uh, contributed. I got some neat shots from, uh, Stephen Mahoney who, who had, uh, had some cool pictures of like, uh, a gecko eating, um, a, a cricket, you know, he's got some really nice pictures of Amy on, on rocks and stuff. So yeah, I just too many people to mention and, 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 uh, that have really contributed and, and made this book what it is, you know? Uh, so I'm, I'm definitely indebted to, to a lot of people. And, uh, um, yeah. I love the, um, I love how you, uh, 
you guys did like these different localities with the map and then, you know, the, the, the weather data and, you know, um, uh-huh. you know, temperature and stuff. It's, it was really cool. I, I, I don't know. I geek out. You know, again, yeah. that's just that natural history and seeing how it yeah. kind of all fits together, you know, into right. this uh, perfect yeah. system that we call life. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Um, it's, I mean, and that's, you know, that's the thing is uh, the more you, more you can, more information you can get. Like, like you, you guys have really uh, made clear on your, on your podcast is, you know, getting out there and just being in the environment is, is mm-hmm. like, worth reading a hundred books, you know, just to mm-hmm. experience yeah. what the animals are experiencing and feel what the place feels like, you know, and, and granted we're there for a short amount of time, we just get a snapshot. And so, you know, and it's hard to plan a whole trip over there in the, in the winter time or something, cause you're not going to see much, you know? And so I, I don't know that I have the disposable income to do that at this point, you know, just <laughs> to go over and see how things are and when they're not active. But so I'm, yeah, I'm definitely trying to plan trips when there are the most uh, chances of being active, but that was another uh, thing I wanted to add too, is, you know, I, I, I really like the resource of the Atlas of Living Australia and they have a lot of cool information. And one of the other things, and I think it's in, yeah, it's in the very end of the book is um, the uh, we have, I have some graphs on uh, the animals or by month, how many were observed in that month and list, you know, that were listed on Atlas of Living Australia. And you can kind of see, okay, if I, want to see Amy in the wild, I'm going to go in October or, you know, so you can kind of, it kind of helps you plan a trip and, and know what, when, when the best time might be to go to have the best chance of seeing them and things like that. So kind of fun. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you're into, you know, whatever the species would be, you know, you're, you're sort of, uh, uh, you know, given that information that's that's just priceless i mean you just saved rob like countless hours of uh... <laughs> research yeah <laughs> thank you yeah. well it's it's kind of funny too because you you get going and you're like oh this would be a good idea to have you know temperature graphs and like sydney okay yeah that's easy i you know, get temperature graphs from sydney and then you try to get some like random spot up near kakadu or yeah. you know, out in the middle of the bush and and like you know, how many, there's no airport there. So they don't have the you know temperature and humidity monitoring at the airport or, you know, so it's, some of those places are really hard to find reliable yeah. and good information, but I, you know, I managed to, it just took a lot of digging, you know, trying yeah. to figure out where you could find uh, weather for some random spot out in the middle of nowhere. Um, yeah. Trying to find the weather for West Kimberly. Yeah, yeah. West yeah. <laughs> was, was difficult. So we had to use the what was it, the East Kimberly East Airport? Kimberly Airport. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yep. We got. It's it can be a challenge to find uh, good good data on, on temperatures and things. And 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 I'm I'm doing the same thing for the second edition of the carpet book and, and looking up uh temperatures and, and uh water, you know, uh rainfall and things like that. And so um and yeah, I was looking at the Kimberly and I was actually surprised because I assumed the Kimberly would be basically the same as, you know, Darwin area and kind of that uh, Northern Territory uh, subtropical right. area. But it's it's really different. Like it, they, they have kind of a uh, cooler temperature drops and things like that. And I was I was a little surprised. And so, yeah. you know, the 
which is which is really invaluable information, especially if you like if you might be somebody who was interested in say rough scale pythons, you know. But <laughs> I don't know who would waste their time with that species, but not a single person, <laughs> no one. Worthless creatures. Pythons. I mean, let's be honest here. So. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I was really surprised. I'm like, they do experience kind of a temperature drop in the winter time. So, and and you know, the days are still pretty hot and toasty, right. but the the nights were actually fairly cool. So um, maybe they aren't as active, or maybe that's kind of more of a, of a stimulus for breeding or things like that. So kind of interesting. And usually those yeah. animals that come from places that have those wild temperature shifts, they're usually some of the easier things to keep in captivity and to breed in captivity, you know? So yeah. the more, the more harsh and crazy the environment, usually they make pretty good captive animals. More forgiving they are. Yeah. Because <laughs> they can handle a wide, wide range of temperatures and, and they eat whatever you put in front of them. So they're not, mm-hmm. picky, you know, cause they, they have to take a meal when they can find it. So yeah, that's uh, it, it is fun to get into the kind of that environment and, and the environmental conditions that uh, make it suitable for, for them and their natural habitat. Yeah. yeah I think I, I think I said this on the show before, but um, when I went and reread the uh, children's Python uh, book after coming back from um, the trip to, uh, to uh, Northern territory. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. like, yeah. you know, all these places that I've read <laughs> about before um, and just knew him as a name. And then I'm like, Oh, I was there. That's where Owen did this. Oh, that's, that's where, where Owen, I did yeah, that. Yeah. You know? yeah. Now with that benefit of saying, Oh, I've seen that. I've been there. The, the downside is, is when you see somebody find a really cool animal that you missed out on in that area, you're like, <laughs> yeah, oh, see, that's there. part of it. Yeah. yeah it's I, like, I, Oh, we I, were right there. Where were the knobtails? What the fuck? <laughs> exactly. yeah. All right. Yeah. Yeah. I was like that parents rat snake we missed. Uh, oh yeah. 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 It's all what about was, timing, right? <laughs> what was the one that, what was the one that you saw, Justin, that we thought I saw too. And then we did a turnaround. That yeah. I will never, I will never live down now for the rest of my life. Yeah, I'm pretty so. sure it was some kind of tantilla, a black-headed snake or something. But it was. Then I just lost I, it. Yeah, yeah, we. I stopped. I'm like, okay, it's right there. Shine my line on it. You guys good? And then I drive up further and I come back. And, Where's the snake? Where is it? Think. What? Yeah, like, what I, don't know. I never I saw it. What? <laughs> like, yeah. Why didn't you say I don't see a snake? <laughs> Why did you nod and smile? Like, come on, guys. <laughs> what are you, novices? <laughs> I'm like, oh, great. That's going to haunt me for the rest of my life. Yeah. Uh, uh, except you guys were trying to convince me that there was no snake there. I'm like, come well, on. I saw like, it. I... Point, I knew I had to turn it this way. We had to. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We're so far down now that we must now convince Justin he's insane. Well, and that's that's probably not far from the truth. I probably didn't see anything. <laughs> it was just like <laughs> weird rocks or something. Like that. That's a snake. Uh, no, yeah, it's, a, it's another grab it. Space with <laughs> oh, okay. But yeah, yeah we'll <laughs> we'll grab that one, Justin. You park the car. And we'll get it. <laughs> uh, he's having delusions uh, yeah. from driving so much. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I think I did. I tell you a story about when I was in Western Australia and I and Steve and Mike had both fallen asleep and I'm driving and trying to stay awake. And uh, I, I'm looking over and I'm like, man, that's some nice gardens there. Look at that corn. It's pretty high. You know, I'm like, man, maybe, maybe we could stop and, you know, eat a tomato or something. And I'm like, wait a second. I'm in the middle of the Pilbara. There's no freaking corn fields. 
what is going I'm like, okay, it's oh, probably, no. <laughs> probably time to pull over. And it's like, <laughs> it's like, reminds me of Homer when he's driving, you know, and he's tired and he, then all of a sudden he's driving in his bed and, <laughs> and then it shows his car dragging like a fence behind it. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's great. And that's how uh, I felt. God. Yep. That's, that's great. I like that one. Oh, man. Uh, so, um, so I would say that then the knobtail geckos are probably pretty good captives then because of coming from such, um, you know, harsh environments, uh, yeah. they, they make pretty good, uh, for, captive animals. For the most part, a few species are, are fairly robust and do very well in captivity. Right. And that would be, you know, Nefris levis and, and their subspecies, Nefris levis levis, levis occidentalis and levis pilbarensis. And all those are, are uh, available to, you know, greater or lesser extent in the U.S. Um, with levis levis being the most, probably the most commonly produced uh, knobtail. Um, Nefris uh, vertebralis, the midline knobtail gecko is, is very hardy in captivity and does very well. And they're fairly easy to keep and breed as well. Um, very similar to levis in their requirements. Um, you, you'll start getting into some of the sensitive species like Levisimus, uh, the, the smooth knobtail. They, they basically have like their scales are so fine. They look like they don't really have scales. <laughs> they're kind of cool looking, but yeah. they, they're, they're one of those dune specialists. And so they actually need a fairly deep substrate and they, uh, so uh, they're, they're a little bit more sensitive. They're probably better left to, you know, the more expert level keepers that, that have, worked with knobtails for a long time and and sometimes they're even difficult for you know the experts they're they're a little harder to produce i don't know that their um captive care requirements have been fully worked out um although there there are a few people like mike that uh, you know that are that f- do fairly well with them and some others like Hussam istanbuli and, and uh, others but um you know they're they're less commonly available in the u.s and they're less commonly produced and a little more difficult to keep uh but so, you know, there are some species that are a little more delicate and tricky. Um, species like uh, Nefris asper, the prickly knobtail, they, they get easily stressed in captivity. And so they're, they're a little harder to keep in that regard because you, you really have to kind of leave them alone. If you stress them too much, they don't do very well at all. If you leave a cricket in their cage, you know, for too long, it can stress them out and, and they can actually, you really? know, die sometimes because they're, because of those stress levels. So they're a little more wow. sensitive and they're also fairly expensive. So if you do find one, you know, it's like, you don't want to, you know, you don't want to kill that thing. So, um, they're, but, but they breed fairly readily you know they're not too difficult to breed and and it's just getting the the eggs to hatch that's a little more challenging amia are pretty tough they're they're pretty easy to keep in captivity but they're a little more difficult to breed i don't know if it's the size thing maybe they need a larger uh enclosure you know for for their size um but they they're very hardy but they're a little more more difficult to produce uh you know some people have, have worked that out pretty well. I'm not one of those yet. <laughs> I still need to <laughs> need to produce my first uh, hatchling uh, amia. But there, you know, there's some people that produce them fairly readily and fairly well. And and you know, it could be uh, bloodlines to some extent. Sometimes mm-hmm. there's some you know weaker bloodlines in the U.S. that uh, just kind of have petered out over time and, and others have been really strong and robust and have have done very well. So, you know, it's probably a good idea to find a a good strong bloodline from somebody who's producing them quite readily and, 
and can help you, you know, in that regard. So, you know, I, I do my research before purchasing one, make sure you're getting it from a, a, a decent breeder and they're not going to be the cheapest geckos either. I mean, they're, you know, the, the cheapest knobtail is probably three, three, two, $250, for a, for a hatchling um, right. and up from there, you know, for six pairs and things. So they're not, they're not a, you know, a disposable gecko by any means. They're, they're okay. a little more expensive than some of the other ones that you can find out there, but you know, well worth the money if you can, you know, pay attention to their needs and keep them happy. Um, you know, the smooth knobtails, they need kind of a, a more moist side of the cage as well as a dry side of the cage. And so you kind of have to keep up on the soil moisture content and there's different ways to accomplish that. You know, some, I usually have kind of a deeper substrate on one side that's the moist area and then it kind of gets a little shallower and on the dry side. And so they can kind of pick where they want to go. They'll burrow into the moist side at, at uh, during the day kind of you know have a little burrow and plug up the entrance and and you can kind of see them through the bottom of the the tub you know see them cool. hanging out in there but uh, they'll mm-hmm. come out at night looking for food and, and uh, so you know they're they're not not the most difficult things to keep as long as you uh, meet some of those basic needs they're fairly fairly easy to to at least you know keep happy and keep alive uh, breeding might be another story you know some of those more difficult than others but um yeah for the for the most part they're pretty tough geckos yeah is it a is it a temperature thing that's that that that's that's the issue or is it like what what would make them difficult to breed they just they don't they don't they don't lock up they don't well um and and again i don't have a lot of experience with me this is kind of secondhand information that i got from mike uh sure uh but you know the the where the asper are, are a little more easily stressed um you know maybe that that plays into it or uh you know the the laying the eggs you know maybe the conditions aren't aren't the best you know maybe it's too wet or too dry and you know where they're nesting maybe the nesting material isn't isn't the best maybe they want something besides you know just fine sand to to nest in although you know most most successful uh keepers usually keep them on that fine uh, you know, kind of dune sand, you know, really fine uh, sand. Um, so, you know, it can work and, and it can be okay. Uh, but, you know, there's there's other, you know, questions <laughs> that I have that I'd still like to find out. So maybe, you know, down the road, we can do a second edition of this book <laughs> once, once I learn a little more. But, you know, there's uh, hatching the eggs can be a little, a little tricky and that could be either nesting or you know, the conditions on, on the eggs in the incubator, uh, mm. that's a little more difficult to say, uh, for, for me that where I don't have the experience in breeding them as much. So, um, I haven't had too much problem, you know, hatching the vertebralis and, and levis eggs, uh, or, or wheeler eggs, you know, synctus eggs using the, uh, like perlite with, with water. Uh, it's pretty basic incubation. They have a, a about the same, incubation time as a, as a python so a couple months and then you got this little nice. you know, perfect miniature version of the adult and running around and and uh you know they can they're fairly uh, easy to get feeding they, they they like to they like to eat so they're not too difficult but and they don't typically need a, a a lot of food like they usually can get by on you know one or two maybe three food items in a night so you don't have to you know uh, mortgage the house to buy their food. <laughs> they're, they're fairly, uh, 
uh, what's the like very um, they they make uh, do with with little food. What's that called? I'm trying to think of the the smart way to say that, but it's you're it's, good. It's failing. <laughs> Them eat good food. I mean, eat, no, they do good. They do good. Yeah. Eat yeah. number food. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I'm regressing. Yeah. Okay. But you know, they're 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 fairly. You know, there's there's a few species that I would say. You know, this is probably the one to start with, and that would be the Wheeler Eye Complex. Those are pretty. Uh, okay. Tough geckos in captivity, um, the Levis comp, uh, Levis group, and the uh, you know Amia would probably be reasonable, um, uh, maybe second tier. But yeah, they're they're pretty uh, so not with, too difficult to keep. With with babies, are we talking like uh, fruit flies or pinhead crickets? How big are the little ones when they come out? So you know, knobtails have fairly good sized head, <laughs> and, mm. and kind of the I guess the the rule of thumb is you kind of feed a, a meal that's about equivalent to the width of their head. And so, you know, a, a little larger than a pinhead cricket, but for, yeah, a newly hatched uh, levis, that's probably, you know, reasonable. I, I use a lot of roaches. I feed a lot of dubia roaches and, and, you know, they, they do pretty well. They, they like, seem to like the roaches, some, some species more than others, but the Amy, Amy, I really like uh, roaches. They they get pretty excited about those. So, um, <laughs> but you know they can handle pretty good size. I mean, we've got some photos of some of the knobtails eating pretty good sized meals. And you know, if they're eating a gecko, that's you know bigger than the width of their head for the most part. Even a small gecko is probably longer than the width of their head. So, mm-hmm. you know, just kind of a rule of thumb with the insects, and it makes it easy for captivity if you kind of adhere to that rule you're probably not going to have too many problems with the, the animals eating more than they should or you know regurgitating or something if they eat too much and that that mm-hmm. could be a risk they, they you'll find sometimes they'll regurgitate if they eat too much uh too many prey items at once okay so you can't just it's not like just open the cage and heave a bunch of crickets in there you kind of got to almost do it sparingly yeah it's a little more metered feeding than, than okay. like a leopard gecko where you can just dump a group of crickets in there and they take them out pretty quick <laughs> so, <laughs> there yeah they're very efficient uh there there's the word i was looking for there oh, yeah okay oh, yeah now nah, i got it you <laughs> get there eventually right <laughs> efficient metabolizers <laughs> So, yeah, but they're, they're a little more sensitive to having a bunch of bugs crawling around in their cage. So you want to make sure you, you know, so, kind of... Uh, with, with the one species that you say can get stressed out very easily and, like, die, is that something you have to watch out for when, like, pairing them? Like, can other individuals stress each other out, too? Um, not as much. I, you know, I, I guess if, it, if they weren't receptive, I, and, and the thing about, uh, knobtails is they're pretty quick to show you their mood. Like, okay. You, they're not happy. Yeah. Got it. <laughs> yeah. You, you throw them together and, and either they're, you know, they're receptive or they're not. And if a female is receptive, she'll just kind of lay down on the sand and, and kind of maybe move her tail around. If she lifts her tail up in the air and kind of pushes her cloaca towards the male, You'd think that's like receptive behavior, but no, that's that's <laughs> not in the mood. <laughs> Back so yeah, um, so that it makes it pretty pretty clear whether or not the female you know wants the male present. Now some species, and you know, I, I've seen a lot of keepers; they'll even keep uh, adult pairs together or even groups uh, together. Mm-hmm. 
And some, uh, you know, are the males are a little more feisty towards other males. Some don't care as much. So, you know, but it's probably best to, if you're going to keep them in a group, just to have one male present with maybe one or, or more females present. So depending on the size of the enclosure, uh, and you know, if, the, if there's op- opportunities for, uh, the geckos to get away from each other, if they bother each other. So that's kind of. You know, you can keep them together, and many people have done that very successfully, but uh, you just have an extra layer of paying attention, you know, making sure they're not going to kill each other or, <laughs> or rip, rip limbs off or something. But they're they're pretty low-key as far as that goes, except they do get excited to breed. The males will, will get, okay. to, get to business pretty quickly with a lot of the species. They'll go right to, right to uh, breeding pretty quick. It's weird because, I mean, like, like we always have – I mean, in herpticulture, we have the horror stories of friends of ours who were like, we had a leopard gecko, and then we went to the pet store and got another one so that we could have two leopard geckos, and there was just mayhem and slaughter in the cage because yeah. they, they they don't know. And it's so, like, I, I almost would be like, I don't think you can keep leopard geckos and stuff and certain other geckos together, but you can kind of keep a knobby, keep knobtails together if you're if they're receptive and if they're okay. It's not... Too much mayhem. You haven't had any really bad issues with that. Yeah, as a rule, um, gecko mm. gecko males don't like each other. They'll yeah, that's a good rule. Often <laughs> to, to the maiming or death of one of them. So yeah, don't. I wouldn't recommend keeping any species of gecko male together. Now, there's probably exceptions to that rule, but uh, you know, for the most part, males will fight. You know, males are males, and they don't like each other. Uh, especially if there's females involved, you know, like back off from my female. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, leopard geckos are commonly kept uh, one male to several females within a cage and, and kept like that. And the female mm-hmm. lay eggs and you go in and dig up your eggs, you know, so then there's generally very few problems associated with keeping uh, leopard geckos in a colony type situation, as long as it's just one male and, and right. multiple females. Um, knobtails I've seen, uh, people keeping certain species uh, um, together. I, I know there's a few zoos that I've seen where they've kept, you know, centralian knobtails together. Um, and I, I believe I even saw maybe a couple males I could be remembering wrong and maybe that's not the case, but I would probably avoid keeping males together. Even if they're probably cool for a while with each other, they, they, they might change their mind, you know, especially if a female's receptive or something, they might try to fight each other. But Typically, I think the knobtails are a little more laid back than others, but I still wouldn't recommend keeping multiple males together. And mm-hmm. usually uh, with the breeding strategies, at least in the U.S., most most keepers will keep knobtails individually. So they keep them by themselves, and that's usually to avoid uh, um, uh, you know stress and things like that. Oh, come on. My, my <laughs> um, so... You know, keeping keeping them individually allows you to monitor the health and the feeding mm-hmm. and all that of of, a, of an animal, and and so um, they're usually you only need to keep them together for a couple of days at a time for breeding. They they get to the business pretty quickly, so um, you don't need to keep them together necessarily for long periods of time. And in, in the wild, they're probably um, not really social animals, at least from any of the research I've seen, although, mm-hmm. you know, there may be instances where they might, uh, uh, utilize good habitat. And so you might find more in a certain area, like I was finding in Western Australia with the Occidentalis. Um, but, uh, for the most part, they seem to be solitary animals. So they're not like in a, 
like other geckos that are more communal um you know for mm-hmm. some of the species I, I remember i was out with uh, peter birch he was showing us around in, in his neck of the woods and we found um we were looking in these uh rock outcrops and and we looked in you know there was this crack and there were all these gecko eggs in there i think they hmm. were some oedura species uh and and they had communally nested so there were all these old egg shells and currently incubating eggs in the same rock crevice that's you know? cool and yeah. so you know i'm not sure there's probably um benefits to communal uh nesting and and, and hanging out together um so under woodosaurus the the barking geckos which are also covered in the book and i haven't talked a lot about those um yeah. but, but they have been found to be communal uh geckos so they'll they'll find you know them hanging out together under you know, piece of artificial cover or something, you can find a couple geckos under there at once. And, and so they may be more, um, okay to have in a colony situation in, in, uh, captivity. I believe that the males will, uh, engage, <laughs> they'll, they'll fight if you no, keep, okay. uh, keep males together. So again, you know, it's probably not the best practice to keep multiple males in the same uh, cage. There was a study that looked at, uh, males of different species so you have different knobtail species and you put two males together and they just basically ignore each other so i think it's more of a competition (laughs) for females kind of thing (laughs) if they're gonna fight that's probably what would be a driver of that yeah and it's almost like okay so they may not fight in the wild but if one gecko is squaring off and the other just runs like i don't know down the log a little bit that might be enough to get away and for him to stop in an enclosure he might not be able to get away and that might be where you can run into some issues there too yeah exactly yeah that's yeah more room more places to get away that's uh, always good and you know even even in a captive setting but it's really hard to replicate the the vastness of of the wild yeah (laughs) outdoors (laughs) yeah yeah so um the Barking geckos. I mean, you you, you want to kind of like uh, talk a little bit about what's going on with those? I mean, yeah. that's definitely a part of the book now. Yeah, yeah. So there's uh, there's two species of Underwoodosaurus, and and mm-hmm. it was kind of uh, um, the other species, the the Underwoodosaurus siorsis is found kind of in the Pilbara area, and they're they're only found from a fairly small area, so there there hasn't been a lot of uh, study. They're they're more recently discovered within the past. Uh, 10 or 10 or 15 years. Um, although they were probably known for longer than that, but since, you know, their description occurred, uh, within the last while. And I do remember seeing, um, somebody post a picture of an underwoodosaurus that they found in the Pilbara. And I remember thinking that looks really different. You know, that's, that's, that doesn't look the same as the other underwoodosaurus, uh, Milli that I've seen. And, and the, um, so they're, they're kind of a, a cool, unique, uh, more, more saxicolus or rock adapted, uh, version of, of the underwoodosaurus. And so they're found in the rocky areas of the Pilbara. They can, uh, be found in the same areas as, you know, uh, the Nephurus cinctus and some of the other Nephurus, uh, Pilbarensis, uh, Wheeler or Levis Pilbarensis and, and some others. But, um, so they're, they're kind of this, uh, probably a stranded, you know, divergent, uh, <laughs> underwoodosaurus that got stuck, you know, probably, where it's at. Yeah. Or widely <laughs> ranging, and then all of a sudden, you know, the things dried out and it got stuck where it is and <laughs> but found a way to carve out a niche and survive there. Niche, niche. 
Niche, no, don't do that. Uh, we get in trouble. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I want to anger the nipper. Yeah, no. He stingy leg slaps for everybody. Um, but <laughs> it's it's cool because I would say that they're the closest thing to like they remind me a lot of a knobtail gecko, but they have tails. Yeah, like it's like it's close, right? Yeah, yeah. There's been a lot of kind of back and forth, and some people I think even still currently keep or or, or classify uh, underwoodosaurus uh, milli and and the others under nephurus, and they've kind of gone back and forth between mm. different genera. And actually, one of the original descriptions of of underwoodosaurus milli was actually probably a drawing of a nephurus levis uh, occidentalis <laughs> back, back in the day when you were using you know you had to uh, quick sketch it <laughs> just, yeah to, to classify and, and stuff so yeah they kind of ran into that problem with that one and, and, and it's pretty good evidence that they had a, a levis instead of a underwoodosaurus milli uh, which they made the original description on so that kind of an interesting story from herpetical herpetal herpetology past. <laughs> I love that. Um, That's great. <laughs> but, and so, you know, they're, they're fairly closely related, um, but there's definitely, you know, a split. And I think uh, Bauer and, and his colleagues have shown that pretty uh, conclusively that uh, underwoodosaurus deserve to be in their own uh, genus as well as, uh, uh, so underwoodosaurus, there, it used to be um, uh, Spirurus, we used to be underwoodosaurus as well. So, um, the, the, uh, granite belt, thick tail gecko <laughs> spire <laughs> is, is another, uh, so, so that's, uh, spire, uh, uvidiculus. So that's the new genus name that Spirus got, uh, they used to be underwoodosaurus, but now they're uvidiculus, which I can't remember the meaning of that. It was something like something to do with rocks and water or something. <laughs> so but they're, they're really cool, uh, cool looking geckos for sure. Um, but they were also found to be divergent enough to warrant their own uh, split into a different genus. Um, Jesus. So they've kind of back. They've also gone back and forth between <laughs> Nephurus and Underwoodosaurus, and but now you know that Bauer group has shown that they are, uh, you know, they warrant their own taxonomic uh, designation under Ubidiculus. So they're kind of cool, uh, cool looking geckos as well. A little more rarely seen in herpetoculture as well. Um, Underwoodosaurus milli is probably one of the more commonly kept species in this book. And they're, they have a pretty extensive range all along the southern third of Australia. So from Western Australia all the way over to you know New South Wales. And uh, they kind of have some projections up, like up into Alice Springs area. So they kind of get into that desert area. But they're, they're more cold tolerant, um, you know, found kind of along that southern two or one third of Australia. Um, but they also get up into, you know, Shark Bay and, and further north. And so and in Western Australia and but they're they're very well adapted and have done very well in their radiation across Australia. So, yeah, one of the That's more commonly cool. encountered species, despite uh, me not being able to find one. No, no. <laughs> they're, they're, they're out there in good numbers. <laughs> yeah. It's the common ones you can't find. It's the rare stuff you're tripping over. So it's, uh, that's awesome. Um, how, how 
uh, care is basically same you'd line up with the knobtail or is it a little bit different? Uh, to some extent, yeah. I mean, I think they can be all be kept pretty similarly. Pretty the, yeah. you know, the underwood source uh, like it a little bit more moist and a little maybe a little cooler as well. So, mm-hmm. but, you know, for the most part, they're pretty easy to keep and breed as well. And I, I don't have any firsthand experience. I haven't, I haven't kept those uh, in captivity or, or bred those, but um, just based on, you know, their natural history and, and their range, um, they probably tolerant of a wide range of, of habitats and <laughs> that will a wide range of uh, environmental conditions. So you could probably keep them a number of different ways and they'd probably mm-hmm. be all right just because they, they can inhabit a wide variety of habitats from, you know, dry desolate areas to, to more uh, wet, you know, uh, coastal areas. So they're, they're pretty tough and that's probably why just because they've, they've been able to adapt to a lot of different uh, places. That's awesome. Yeah. But re- really cool uh, person, you know, personality on those as well. They they get a little spunky and, you know, all the species can be a little feisty. You know, they, they have a little fight to them and they'll bark at you and kind of this raspy, barky hiss thing that they do when they're, <laughs> when they're a little uh, bugged by your presence. You know, if you tap them on the tail or something, they'll give you a little bark and, 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 uh, I love the uh, the rough knobtails. They'll do this threat display where they kind of raise and lower themselves on their legs, and they'll stand up all tall on their toes, and then they'll go down. It's almost like they're on hydraulics, and they have this really <laughs> cool movement. It's 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 freaky to watch. So that's that's one of my favorites is when they start displaying and getting all you know in your face and stuff. It's kind of cool. They do definitely have some personality, and they, and they'll they'll give you a nip man they can bite oh, really bite pretty good they've got some pretty good Damn. jaws on them um so you know they're not really like the like a like a crested gecko that you want to ha- handle and hold all the time you know you, <laughs> they're kind of like more like a look but don't touch type of pet you know they don't like a lot of handling and they stress out so you know they're they're more like observe and watch and stuff so but i'm sure there's some some out there that are okay with you know handling here and there but for the most part they don't really enjoy it and they'll let you know <laughs> they'll bark at you or bite you or whatever, but yeah, they're pretty, uh, pretty feisty. They put up a good fight. <laughs> Set it up and leave it alone. Damn it. You know, just, <laughs> just don't yeah. touch it. <laughs> yeah. I, I think there's, there's two kinds of herpers. You usually got mm-hmm. the ones who have to grab and, and, and hold everything they see. And then others <laughs> that you know, are, and content to sit back and take a picture and observe, you know, from a distance. I'm I'm more of the latter than the former, but you know, I do enjoy it, getting a good wanker shot with a cool species. <laughs> I but, mean, you have to. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I I also like to let it kind of leave it alone, let it do its thing. You know, watch it, try to watch it from a distance. And although I do like to get a good picture first, <laughs> so I'll bug yeah. it and get in its face for a picture. But then I can sit back and kind of see what it does, see what it, you know. Uh, watch let it, it let it distance. let it do its thing yeah yep. let it yep. let the nature thing go exactly so. yeah yeah <laughs> are they uh threatened in uh the wild at all any of the uh... uh well i guess the the good thing for a lot of these species is they come from places that aren't really economically valuable <laughs> so <they're, laughs> not, they don't make for the that. farmland yeah exactly right. and then, you know that's you know for some species it's probably problematic uh there, there is, they had the Nefertis delaney, the, the Pernati knobtail gecko, kind of listed as potentially 
at risk because it has such a small habitat and small uh, range. Mm -hmm. And so if something disturbed that, then, you know, that could be problematic, similar to, you know, what you'd have for like a rough scale Python where the, the size of the range and the potential for something to go wrong could wipe out the, the entire species or something. I don't know. Um, but uh, I think they've since been kind of uh, downgraded to, to less or, or least concern or, or, you know, mildly threatened or whatever designation they gave just because the habitat that they live in isn't really uh viable for farmland or, or anything like that that maybe there's a risk for mining but uh, you know mines kind of they i guess they can take up a pretty good area but it's not going to take up the whole habitat like maybe farmland might so. mm, and there's yeah. cattle and grazing and things on the land but the they don't seem to be too phased by that and they're still pretty healthy populations. So I think they've seen that maybe the place they come from isn't so terrible. And so they're all right. Um, and I don't think there's really any of these that are um, endangered or even, you know, really threatened um, because, you know, some, they, they have fairly good size ranges and, and a lot of their, their range is less, uh, uh, valuable habitat from the perspective of, de of development or, you know, people living mm -hmm. there things. So, yeah, that's a good thing. <laughs> a very good thing. And Eric, Eric freaked me out because we were talking yesterday on the rough scale. He's like, Oh, the cane toads have made their way. And I'm like, no. <laughs> so yeah, it's yeah. 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 Well, hopefully they're, they're going to benefit from the cane toads coming through that. Um, they, they, uh, shines paper talked a little bit about that with, um, the cane toads that, that have actually benefited a lot of the species, you know, some like the large monitors have really been hit hard and they're starting yeah. to bounce back now that they recognize that toads are not food and don't try to eat a toad. Don't eat this. Yeah. yeah. And so hopefully. Which is amazing just in itself, right? Oh, yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah. it's incredible. And, you know, that's that's really cool. But other species like uh, I think it was the children's python they did a specific paper on that showed children's pythons didn't really get that impact. They actually benefited from the cane toads because the larger predators were getting bumped off and, and less things out there to eat them. So their populations expanded and increased a little. The other, the other kind of cool one was the fly river turtle, the, you know, the pig nose turtles that, uh, really, yeah, because the monitors will eat their eggs and dig up their nests and stuff. And with less monitors around, there were more fly river turtles uh, hatching and, and making it to adulthood. And so um, they benefited from the cane toads coming through and their populations cool. went up instead of down. So, you know, it's not as simple, I guess, as mm -hmm. cane toads bad. You know, everybody died. <laughs> never is. Never <laughs> is that simple. Yeah. And it's cool to see some of the animals like learning to, you know, yeah. eat their guts and, you know, leave them. <laughs> Stay away from the back. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Flip them over and eat their guts and you're good to go. <laughs> like the, <laughs> the crows and some of the other, I think even some of the reptiles were doing that, right? Uh, uh, I, some snake I, I or something. Know. But anyway, awesome. yeah, we, we found a slaty gray that had, was in the middle of eating a cane toad. And it was, we thought it was dead. And then we kind of poked it and it moved around and then it spit the toad out and then it was all feisty and ready to go. But it seemed like it was kind of drunk or something. So yeah. I, I think it was being affected a little bit, but I don't know. We may have saved its life by. Yeah, dude, we it. just saved your ass. It's like, you know. <laughs> but, you know, they, they, have, they have shown that the keelbacks can eat cane toads, yes. especially yeah. smaller cane toads that. You know, keelbacks aren't the biggest snake in the world, so they can probably only eat younger toads. But yeah, they can handle a, 
a cane toad. But yeah, very few animals can. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. Oh, and wasn't the slaty gray the one you found in that log? That was just the slaty gray. We well, we found that we found the water python, and then <laughs> and then the slaty gray, and then we found the slaty gray, and we're like, the slaty that gray will pose evil. for the picture, <laughs> yeah. just like the water python. Yeah. No, <laughs> yeah, slaty grays like to bite. <laughs> yeah, that thing was like <laughs> we could feel it, like because it was biting Rob's camera, so you could hear the <laughs> hear teeth the like teeth. scraping across it, and it's like, uh, yeah. dude, just chill for five seconds. That thing was no. <laughs> I just no, want like a picture. It, just settle yeah. down. Let me take my. Picture. Well, we'll leave you alone. No, we'll leave it's you like yeah, this piece. is. <laughs> after we just got done with this water python i was just like all right here i am all right can i go now i'm like that's all we that's all that's it yeah. but yeah all the water pythons we found were fairly easy going i don't think they really were striking to i remember peter yeah. birch was trying to get nick bit he kept like swinging the the water python over by nick <laughs> so it, would bite him. it was so funny peter's a he's a hoot man he's fun to, that's that's fun to work with. that's awesome <laughs> Yeah, I was, but yeah, the water pythons wouldn't bite I Nick for imagine. some reason. I guess he's the water python whisperer. But um, so yeah, was, <laughs> <laughs> so we didn't see any uh, blood from the water pythons. But <laughs> uh, yeah, we yeah. didn't either. Yeah, it was yeah. surprising. You know? Yeah, yeah. But uh, cool, 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 cool. So uh, um, I don't know what else is. Uh, so so you're you're actually starting to wait. You've bred some species, uh -huh. yes? Yeah, yeah. And you got some that you're trying to breed this year? Yeah, yeah. Hopefully I can like breed some, some AMEA this year, uh, you know, breed some, produce some AMEA, and as well as the Nefers Wheeleri. This will be my first chance with the Wheeleri this year. So Nice. Yeah. They're very similar to Synctus. I mean, they were, they were classified as a single species up until just last year. So... Um, they were, a su you know, subspecies of, of the same species. So they were both classified under Wheeleri, 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 and Wheeleri Synctus. But, uh, you know, recent genetic and, and uh, physical analysis uh, showed that they had diverged in, in regards to some of their morphology. So um, the Wheeleri has a shorter head and a more uh, a taller head, I believe, whereas mm -hmm. Synctus is, has a little bit more squatty, you know, flatter head. And, uh, you know, they, they had a bunch of different measurements that they made and they found that some were significant, you know, and they also looked at their genetic divergence, which was pretty, uh, pretty huge. And so they, you know, they, they've actually been split for quite a while. And so they show that they're fairly divergent. So, um, huh. you know, as, as far as, as you can looking so similar as they do. But, you know, enough to warrant the split into two two different species. And, you know, some people might argue with that, but uh, I think they, they made a pretty convincing <laughs> argument. And it took quite a while for the paper to be published. So I think, you know, they, they had to go through the ringer and, and really justify that claim. But so, you know, currently they're recognized as two, two separate species. But so I bred Synctus, but this will be my first try with uh, Wheeler Eye. So I like yeah. the Wheelers because they're just... They're like they're covered with like tiny little spikes. Like they're awesome looking. Yeah, the, their face. Uh, I think my favorite part about the Wheeler Eye versus Synctus is their face reticulations. They have those black, really defined black lines on their face. Yeah, the Synctus typically don't have those more. Uh, don't have those defined lines. And uh, the the Wheeler Eye also tend to have thicker bands. And so you know the dark. I really like uh, the contrast. Uh, a lot of people have gone to great efforts to 
produced uh, to produce uh, you know reduced banded synctus, and so you'll get a, a synctus with um, you know almost no bands or you know they're just the, <laughs> right. Know. But I really like the contrast between these black you know dark bands um, and and the Wheeler I have kind of thicker but their their neck and their first back band are connected. So mm-hmm. that's kind of one of the d- distinguishing characteristics between Wheeler Eye and Synctus is Wheeler Eye generally have uh, four bands, whereas Synctus, you know, Synco, Synctus in their name, uh, refers to five bands. So they have five bands along their back and onto their tail. And so that's kind of one of the ways you can tell them apart. Now, we did find a Synctus in the wild that had, you know, reduced patterning reduced banding and it just had a circle in the middle of its back and uh, so you know you can't that kind of messes that formula up a little bit and you can have wheeler eye that their neck and their their first back band are separated so they look like um, the banding pattern of a synctus and so you know you can't necessarily go by banding to to determine which which uh, species you have but right. you know other other defining characteristics, and you know if you look at enough pictures of them or, or see enough individuals, you can pre- pretty much tell at a glance whether you're whether you've got a synctus or a wheeler eye. I think for a long time, you know, several people have uh, suspected that they were different species just because they're so unique in their uh, morphology and behaviors and things like that. So you know, I think a lot of people recognize that split. And so it just took some scientists to kind of demonstrate that scientifically to show that they were indeed uh, two separate species, but very cool geckos, very similar in appearance, but very different in a lot of ways as well. So I, I was reading that. Um, so, um, the, the females, they, they utilize, uh, fat storage in their tails. Is that something that like going into breeding them that you have to like, uh, up their food intake or something like that? Or Mm. is it? Yeah, I mean, that, that'll depend on the species, of course. Um, so uh, obviously, you know, the rough knobtails don't have a lot of food, uh, fat storage in their tails. And they actually have uh, quite developed fat bodies within their body. And they can they can get kind of overweight, <laughs> really robust looking. But they're, <laughs> they, yeah, they'll have they'll have some fairly large fat bodies, even in a thin individual. I think reptiles in general are really good at making do with with little energy you know making be, yeah. being very efficient in in their in in their fat storage and things so but but a lot of these geckos that have very small tails the thin the thin uh not the thin-tailed species as well they don't have a lot of room to store much fat in their tails and they have very right. um low uh fat storage but they will have some uh abdominal you know, fat bodies uh, for, for fat storage. So it's a little harder to tell. It's easy to, you know, look at a gecko and say, Oh, he's got a nice fat tail. Um, he's good to go. Whereas with some of these, it's, you know, a little more difficult to tell, but you know, you can kind of see their body condition and, and kind of see at a glance if they look like they're healthy and, and robust and ready to go, they should be fine. Um, a lot of the, uh, females that I'd find in the wild, actually, you can, you know, you can usually see eggs in the belly of a gecko. So it makes it really easy to tell if they're females or males. First off, because males have big hemi penal bulge. So as long as it's a mature animal, you can see pretty much at a glance if it's a male or a female. And a lot of times the females would have eggs visible through their skin. So geckos tend to be um, on the, um, you know, several clutches per year type of breeding uh strategy so they'll lay a number of 
uh, clutches, but usually geckos typically only lay two eggs per clutch. And so you'll have a lot of clutches. So if, if it's a good year, you know, you might have five or six clutches, whereas in a, in a poor year, you might just get one or two or, or none at all. So, um, you know, depending on how, how they, how they are feeding in the wild will depend on, you know, how reproductively, uh, how much reproductive output they can have. But, you know, that's typical of, of just about any animal. Um, mm-hmm. And so in captivity, you know, if you're supporting them well and giving them plenty of food and, and less, you know, low stress, then they're going to do well. And, and some uh, geckos, you know, can lay up to 10 clutches in a year, uh, depending wow. on the species. But they typically lay like um, every 30 days, almost, you can almost set your watch to it. <laughs> they, they lay so reliably, you know, right on the 30 days. So it kind of makes it easy to track when they're about ready to lay another clutch and you can make sure the nesting conditions are proper and things like that. So that's kind of one of the things that makes breeding the geckos easy. You can also see the eggs through the belly skin for the most part on, on most of the species of Nefurus. Um, it gets a little more difficult in the the rough knobs just because they have kind of a more thick and, and patterned uh, some, but usually the knobtail geckos have a, a white belly. I can't think of um, any offhand that, that don't have a white, you know, unpatterned belly. So, right. you know, it just, uh, but you, so you can monitor their reproduction fairly easily that way. Um, gotcha. Yeah. What, what would be the, the advantage, uh, the, the reproductive advantage to, to have two eggs, uh, you know, but 10 clutches as opposed to, is it just the size of the animal itself or is, is there some, I don't know. I would think yeah. that like, their food would only be available at, you know, you know what I mean? Uh-huh. I don't know. What's, maybe that's a dumb question and I'm not thinking of no, I mean, that's a, that's a really good question. How did that breeding strategy come about? Because yeah. it's very common for most geckos to just have two eggs per, right. per clutch. So I don't know, you know, I, I, I don't know if I've heard a really good answer for that. So that's, that's a, a good topic for, you know, some <laughs> little research, but um, there's, there's probably a, lo- a lot of good ideas on that, but for, to some extent, the, the knobtail geckos are pretty cold tolerant. So they, they're active at, at you know, throughout the year and where they can make do with kind of a, a lower amount of prey items. Um, that okay. could, that could be part of that strategy where you don't need a lot of energy if you're only laying two eggs. So if you can, right. you know, get enough energy to lay those two eggs, you can just kind of keep doing that as long as there's food availability or, or the temperatures are okay. So maybe that's part of that strategy. And then you're laying eggs and putting um, offspring out there, um, kind of throughout the year. And so, you know, some, some that are laid early on might have a better chance of getting big, you know, because there's more prey or something during the spring. And so they can get bigger and, and go on to, to reproduce. Whereas maybe, you know, they laid their eggs and then all of a sudden conditions crash. And so, you know, if you put all your eggs in one basket, there's a bigger chance for failure. Whereas if you, lay throughout the year, you might have a better chance that at least some of those are going to make it and, and get on to, you know, good times. There's also some evidence that, you know, some of these eggs might hatch and the, and the babies go immediately into brumation. And so they might, you know, overwinter before they even really start eating and growing much. And so wow. um, that might be another strategy where, you know, you can kind of 
soak up the the remaining egg yolk and and just kind of hang out and chill for a few months and then you know maybe even grow a little bit from that egg yolk and and be ready to hit the ground running when when it warms up but um i i don't know i think that i can see some some really good potential benefits to that strategy um whereas you know it's it's very common i mean there's geckos all around the world and they they all seem to have that same strategy. Yeah. Two eggs and multiple clutches a year. Huh. Yeah. That's cool. That's, that's it's cool to think about. Yeah. It's a good, yeah. good topic for, uh, for discussion for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I was going to ask, uh, about as far as getting babies going in captivity, are they, are they pretty straight ahead and they take to food pretty readily and establish pretty, pretty quickly or. Yeah, see, I mean the species that species. I, I the species that I've worked with have really taken the food pretty pretty easy. They might be a little awkward and kind of mm-hmm. like uh, they get better at, at catching the bugs, you know, as they go. It might take them <laughs> four or four or five strikes to try to grab something at first when they first hatch. But once they kind of get the the hang of it, they they get it on the first try, you know, for the most part. So it just depends uh, to some extent on the species and and on even on the individual. Um, whether or not they're a good, good hunter or something. And, you know, not, not everything that hatches out was necessarily meant to survive. So you might have some Mm -hmm. that just don't catch on very well and that don't do great. And, uh, you know, it just depends, but for the most part, I think overall nefaris, uh, take to feeding pretty, pretty readily. You don't have, um, like, uh, uh, like necessarily a species specificity where like a jungle doesn't want to eat a rat or, you know, you don't have to really trick them into eating. They'll take a bug that goes in front of them. Um, they might have a, have a genetic predilection for certain, uh, prey types. Um, so, you know, if you do have issues getting them started, then maybe you could try a different uh, type of insect, but for the most part, they, they're pretty easy going and can get onto, to, uh, commercially available insect diets it's going to be an insect every time it's not like you're gonna have to scent mark something something yeah (laughs) exactly yeah for the most if you can get the insect to scent mark it you can feed it to your good and (laughs) i guess that's (laughs) that's the nice thing about bug eaters is they're they're pretty uh good about taking a wide variety of bugs there's not very many bug specialists although you know in the wild we, we did mention earlier that they they are a little uh they they might have a preference for certain types of insect. Maybe some, you know, take spiders preferentially over, mm-hmm. you know, others. But, you know, in, in captivity, they're all pretty. They'll take pretty much, you know, crickets or roaches or whatever you've got available. It would make sense that they would eat spiders since we found so many of them, <laughs> right? <laughs> damn, yeah. damn, Einstein spiders. Yeah, us <laughs> every time. Yeah, it's like the, the stars in the sky. <laughs> Einstein's <laughs> over the ground for spiders. <laughs> you think uh, you're seeing something cool? Huh? Another spider. Uh, you get, like, I think we did that where it was. Um, Somebody would see something eye shine and they'd walk like three steps and then someone would just yell spider and we'd all turn back. Like it would just like, yeah. it got close enough to realize it was another damn spider. So I did see a, a really cool spider when I was looking for the vertebralis uh, mountain Western Australia it was like this black and white, pretty good size. Like it looked like a big wolf spider or you know, nice. a small tarantula, but it was black and white, really cool pattern. So that was kind of a fun one to, 
chase on the eye shine front, you know, but <laughs> most of them are those little, you know, ones that you can barely see that just kind of look like a clump of sand or something that right. are really sparkly for some reason. They really shine. Those eyes really reflect, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they do. Yeah. Usually you can kind of see a, a little bit of a greenish color to the spider eye shine. So you can kind of like, okay, that's probably a spider. If you well, see that's green. a good tip. You always want a good tip inspect a little further don't you you just want to make sure yeah that happened many times <laughs> one time that it's not yeah. is when it's you're not. like spider yeah <laughs> it's the hollow python we missed Damn yeah it. yeah <laughs> well, i'm trying to think if i've really found reptiles based on eye shine and i i know people do it but i i really haven't had a lot of luck i think mm. i i found a leaf tailed gecko once by eye shine that i you know, that kind of clued me in that it was there because they're pretty cryptic. But, um, you know, I, I don't think I found a lot of reptiles based on their eye shine. But then again, you know, most of them have been found road cruising and <laughs> they're sitting right. in the middle of the road. So, you know, <laughs> most people can see snakes in the middle of the road, Owen. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, Eric found the one gecko that we found, um, Strif- you know, Strifuris. the Strifuris. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He found that because it was eye shine. And that's because um, we pulled over because he thought he saw a blackhead, but it turned out to be a stick. <laughs> so, and yeah, he was looking, he was looking for something to save himself. And that's, that's how he found the guy. That stick looked like a blackhead. Yeah. That pattern. I, I, you almost hey. got that stick brought home with you. Yeah. So <laughs> that was a cool stick, man. I would have loved to have that stick. Yeah. It had the pattern of a blackhead on yeah. it. <laughs> that's cool. Yeah. There's You'd probably a- pay like 40 bucks in a store. <laughs> probably. Yeah. Yeah, you're you're always you always get a pass if it's a convincing stick, you know. That is, all right, yeah, it's always a get a yeah. pass. It's a convincing stick. Yeah, yep. you got to admit, for... Owen, that was a pretty good stick. I'll admit it was a pretty good stick. All right, I will admit it was a good stick. <laughs> I've stopped for countless non-good. You know, uh, <laughs> they they haven't been good sticks, and they haven't looked any, like what I hate is the stupid paint on the road when they have any kind of paint from when oh. they're doing road work or something yeah i don't yeah. know why that always looks like a snake and i always like slam on the brakes and oh it's just some paint or tar or whatever <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah i've stopped for a lot of unconvincing things so you know if, if it looked at, at all like a blackhead fully you get a full pass there Eric. no big deal <laughs> yeah it was it was crazy because it was like it had these burns that were bands really yeah oh, that's cool yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was caught up yeah. in, a, in a brush fire or something so yeah, i just get angry when i stop for the I like break them and <laughs> throw them out in the middle of the desert like you're never gonna fool anyone again <laughs> yeah. i'm saving yeah. other herpers like, exactly the funnest is when you can leave one for another herper you know I, I tried to do that to you guys but i don't think anybody really fell for it when i when we were fo- photographing that uh night snake, night snake? <laughs> and i went yeah. went down the road oh, and lined yeah, up some rocks and nobody nobody got excited i'm like hey hey what's what's that you know, what's I'm trying to, yeah <laughs> does anybody hey, think I, that's a snake we saw you walk down there you yeah. idiot <laughs> at least be a little more subtle <laughs> oh man <laughs> Uh, All right, well, we're almost at the uh, the two hour mark. Um, I guess uh, where can uh, people uh, get the book? Yeah, huh? they can uh, email me at justin.julander at usu.edu. Um, that um, also on my website, um, there's a, a link that you can fill out. You know, if you're interested in getting a signed copy of the book, um, you can order it direct from Eco 
uh, herpetological publishing. Um, they've got a lot of great books and, and uh, a lot of cool, you know, hats and, and shirts and stuff like that as well. So eco is a, a great place. Bob Ashley. I'm probably sure everybody's heard of Bob Ashley. He's, he's one of the pioneers in herpetoculture. So a uh, great guy, but he's, yeah, he's been fun to work with on the books. And uh, so we're happy to publish through eco. Um, so on their website, they've got a lot of, a lot of good books that man, that uh, snakes of Arizona book I <laughs> bought from wow. eco. Holy crap. I don't know how they charge so little for that, man. That's oh. It's a beast of a book. <laughs> That's kind of our, our new goal for the second edition of the carpet book, but <laughs> <laughs> try to try to match that got, thing. Yeah, I got a Bible from you know. Yeah. There's a few <laughs> more species of, of snakes in Arizona versus carpet pythons. So <laughs> maybe yeah, we, yeah. we might not hit eight hundred and fifty pages, but man, what a cool book. But anyway, yeah, so you can uh, get a signed copy from me. You can get one from Mike. He's got, you know, copies as well. Um, so, yeah, just let me know. We can. I, I've shipped a number of them overseas, over to Australia and over to Europe and elsewhere. So um, it's okay. a little little pricey to ship overseas. Um, usually it's yep. around 40 bucks to sh- just to ship a book. So if you're going to get one, you might as mm. well get a couple friends and have a few shipped over to save on shipping. So... But yeah, uh, just contact me. Happy to send over any books you want. <laughs> cool. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an excellent book. Oh, and I, I guess I, I, thanks, man. Appreciate it. Yeah, my my uh, website's uh, Australian Addiction uh, Australian Addiction dot com. Australian Addiction Reptiles. It's my business nice. name. If you don't know, so yeah, check it out. And I've got my uh, library on there, so you can see the the four the whole four books and and. If you want another one of those, unfortunately, the first edition of the complete carpet Python is out of print at this point, but hopefully we'll have a replacement here soon. Um, Nick and I have been working feverishly trying to get that thing done. Yeah. So it's yeah. a, it's a long process, but yeah. It'd be well worth it. I'm sure. Uh, I oh, hope yeah. so. Hope so. Hope everybody uh, is excited. It will, it will be as well received as the first one. So I appreciate everybody who's, supported us in in these books and i mean it's that's the main thing is that hopefully people get something out of it and and enjoy it and like the like the content so if you have any uh um ways that the book can be improved let me know i'm happy to especially if we're going to put out a second edition to see what can what people want to see um that's not there uh that would be helpful as well so i appreciate any feedback from yeah from people so but yeah thanks thanks for the support and i appreciate you know those who have who have supported us in these books and bought the books and um read the books <laughs> doesn't <laughs> doesn't do it doesn't make me too happy if you just buy it for your bookshelf so make sure <laughs> read it and see, see what you think yeah <laughs> yeah well, thanks to everybody who's who's uh helped us uh, sell these books so i am i am behind i am just starting the complete children's python. That, that's all right, man. <laughs> Soak it in. Soak it I in. Am, Take your uh, time. <laughs> well, the problem is, like, I read a I read a, a page and then I turn it and I'm like, no, 
you will not get spotted pythons. <laughs> Read the page, turn. No, yeah. <laughs> like it. Yeah, that is the um, risk. That is the risk. Yeah, the is more the you problem. learn and the more you see <laughs> these things, it's. I like, have to keep telling myself no. <laughs> yeah. that, that's my fears. I'm like, I kind of like knobtails, and I'm going to get this book from you, and I'll be like, no. Like, and, yeah. Yeah. Yes, it's like, why are you yelling at that book? Justin knows why. <laughs> like, yeah. <it's... laughs> oh, do you find yourself like when you're reading the children's Python book? Do you find that yourself knowing those places that we went to? Yes, and the problem is, is that Melissa wants Stimpsons. And I'm like, no, <laughs> like, I don't want no. And I haven't gotten to that part of the book yet. And I fear like what, you know, it's a guy. If you only knew two guys that you were talking, shut up, shut up. <laughs> like, I, know, I know. Listen, that's the problem. I know where they are. Like, it's, it's not that it's just that, you know, no, damn it. Now, so. now I got to say, there is no reason that you can't have an anteresia. They're tiny. They take yeah, no. <laughs> They're like, Listen, I had spotted. Like, I fed them too much. I broke them. It's like <laughs> half, the, <laughs> half the size of your uh, colubrids are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's no. Yeah. I'm running out of excuses. What's happening, and that's the problem. Hey, I feel it happening now. Now, so. I, I would say, you know, it's it's okay to have an academic interest in in speed. I there's so many cool reptiles out there that you know if if we tried to keep everything we thought was cool we you know run out of room real quick and and so you know there's uh, you guys saw me geek out over that earless lizard in texas <laughs> i and i've i've gotten home yeah. i've gotten home and i've read about you know i've done plenty of reading about them and looking up information on them and i think oh man those would be so cool but at the same time it's like I'm not going to keep them in captivity. I'm going to try to go see them again in Texas or Arizona mm -hmm. and just enjoy them in their natural habitat and sit and watch them and, you know, take pictures and video of them. That that's going to be okay for me. I'm just going to have an academic interest in those, in those animals. We don't have to keep everything right. I think yeah, yeah. if we keep a few species, well, I think that's going to go much further than keeping a lot of species poorly. <laughs> so yeah, I'm yeah. not going to shame you for not having an anteresio. And you know, that's Eric will do that. Yeah, I, got I, I will say you're missing out. Stimps and I are freaking awesome. <laughs> They're yes. one of my favorite species to keep. And holy crap, I hatched out some good ones this year. <laughs> so oh, no. I'm like oh, holding yeah, them no. all back. So they're not even available for you. Oh, thank God. So. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're awesome oh, species. Whew. So I, that boy. You know, yeah, but I think we're probably missing out on, on, a lot of things so that's okay too we can miss out and just get excited when somebody else keeps them well right <laughs> and and look at pictures right, exactly. and go look him look go see him in the wild that's that's much better than keeping anything in captivity in my opinion so, oh yeah get out and herp <laughs> hey, hey i i put in for my june vacation man right on so. right on yeah i'm looking mm -hmm. forward to getting out there with you guys again you guys are really fun to herp with it was a it was a <laughs> A really good trip. Yeah. So yeah, I had yeah, a, Eric. I had Eric a lot has of to fun. watch like three seasons of The Simpsons before you let <laughs> yeah, it come that, back out. That would help yeah. a lot, I've, I think. <laughs> I, I hope you started. I have started. I have good, good. You know, good my sense. wife's like, what are you? Why are we the, watching? What's with the Simpsons? What is this? Nineteen ninety again? And I'm like, shut up! I need it. I'm doing homework. <laughs> They're making fun of me. Yeah. Just you just gotta memorize like. 10 quotes and you're good to go. That's it. You can at least, yeah, you can you at least get a, yeah. yeah, get a laugh or two out of the rest of this. Right. <laughs> like so many jokes are going by me and I don't know what's happening. <laughs> I'm forced to watch Simpsons. There's only what, 28, 30 seasons or 30 no, by this point. Yeah. 
Yeah. I remember being Rob- in junior high watching The Simpsons, man. I'm 45 <laughs> yeah, <right>? years old. <laughs> yeah. Rob sort of like said, watch, uh, I can't remember the seasons. Rob's this season seasons or this season. Yeah, you're, you're good. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> like it starts getting really good around like season three or four. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's, <laughs> that's the good stuff. That's the yeah. money money episodes. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Uh, but yeah, I, I'm looking forward to getting out again with you guys. That was a lot of fun. And I really, yeah. thanks for including me and, and letting yeah, me tag along there. But yeah, that was a great trip. So yeah. looking forward to herping with you again, hopefully in Australia soon too. Cause yeah, I was really bummed out about missing out on that trip. That was a, that was a bummer, but yeah, there'll be more sure. opportunities. We'll get over there sometime soon. I'm, I'm dying. I'm yeah. dying to go. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. There's nothing like having a plane ticket in hand and watching it <laughs> just get, oh, go by and be like, crap. <laughs> that hurts. Yeah. Yeah. But I'll just make it all that much more enjoyable. Exactly. We do get there. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And we'll <laughs> see that Embercada crawling along and you'll just, yeah, oh, that'll man. be it. I'll lose my shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I will too. I'll be right there with you, even though I've seen a couple. You know, yeah. still, still good to see. It's no still good. What. Yeah, yeah. Doesn't matter. Yeah. I'm shaking Owen. Owen, do you know what this is? Do you know what it is? Do you understand? It's crapping. It's, it's, I don't understand. It's what? No. Yeah. yeah. That's knock you down a couple. We'll have to pull you down, pull you away from it. Come on, we gotta go, Eric. We gotta go. No. 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 Just leave me here with it. No, nobody. <laughs> Sorry, Dory. We, tell tell we, my we, wife I love her. We can bring your husband back. He's found a new GPS, GPS mark me. She'll know where I am. What? He says you can visit him. Here are the coordinates. He, he lives yeah, with that mile marker six. He lives with the the Invercada now. Damn it, Owen! You had one job. I know. I'm sorry. Like oh man. <laughs> Sweet. okay all right. all right man um well that's awesome uh eric you want to close it out and then we'll get the hell out of here sure yeah um uh for us murray python radio uh dot com is our website uh email is info at murray python radio dot com um you know subscribe to the uh all the different podcasts that we have uh there are many now <laughs> and uh you know, we have a, a couple more that will be joining us uh, in, in the very near future, which uh, I think will be cool. Um, and uh, yeah, and uh, we have a, I, I keep saying this, but uh, the next yep. episode of of the Herp History is going to be with Richard Ross, which is <laughs> nuts, Owen. I mean, I, don't even wanna, I just think about that. Like, I, don't Bible, do it. Man. I don't like, even want to do it. Like, oh, like why are you talking to drooling idiots like us? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hey, you. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, so we got that. Um, trying to think what else. You you can uh, uh, support the show by uh, getting some merch from the Teespring store. Yep. Um, Ray Python Radio Network or NPR Network. Mm-hmm. And um you can uh, watch our live streams uh, on Monday. 
uh, Carpets and Coffee uh, with uh, me, Riley, and Lucas. Owen comes once in a while. Owen doesn't get to come because he works. Yeah. He's doing insurance claims. If Owen has off on Monday, he will be there. But he rarely has off on Monday. Does it really make you mad that you know that like one o'clock we're just sitting around drinking coffee? Monday is bad enough. And then I'm like, they're there. They're drinking coffee. They're having fun without me. Yeah, I'm pissed. No flat white bullshit. It's just straight black coffee. Every like I, I want there to be some sort of like camera that's just on me working as you guys are doing all this like i can't hear you or talk to you it's just me working and getting pissed off yeah uh, yeah that must suck man i'm sorry yeah, really i hate my job <laughs> <laughs> i don't know we're, we're we're we talked about that before maybe open the servitary please yes. god anyway yeah. uh <laughs> the, um, patreon. the patreon patreon yeah um thanks to the people that uh are supporting us uh through that and um <clears throat> um <laughs> What? Nothing. It's um. So uh, it, the, the, what happened today that I told you about? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, I want to thank whoever sent me the seven, um, <laughs> the seven various spice rubs that all have. You gotta send that picture to Justin. I will send that picture to Justin later. Um, although I, I forgot to ask, I was gonna, I was gonna interrogate Justin if, if he did it. If it was so, him, <laughs> did he I don't do think it? Yeah. Unless, like, unless you gave him my address, which I don't I put not. past. So, um, but uh, thank you, whoever sent that, and also go to hell. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so what did you get, Owen? <laughs> all these different—they're they're literally seven different types of um, spice rub that you put on various meats, and they all have Bigfoot on them, and they're all different flavors. It's gotta be Nipper. I, I, it can't be Nipper. Why not? It came from Spokane, Washington. So, so I have so what? So I, well, I you mean, can't buy stuff from Spokane, Washington. But Nipper wouldn't do that. Nipper would be more subtle with his devilry. Like wow. you know, it's it, 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 right. part of me. Part of me thinks Chris Alemi, but Chris Alemi wouldn't have spent money on me. He just would have sent memes at me all day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so I don't know who you are or how you got my address because that's somewhat terrifying. <laughs> but so wait, thank did, you. Did you record your video yet of you no, watching the DNA tooth? <laughs> no, I didn't record the video of me watching the thing you told me to and getting mad. But now um, uh, Riley said that I should taste test every single rub and get mad on a, on another uh, video. So we um, might do that that in the patreon oh that would be great so, it's going to be a pro bigfoot anti-bigfoot <laughs> oh man oh that's great <laughs> now it's like silence i was like i hate you i've gone i'm not doing anything I'm just, it's, yeah i understand okay fair enough <clears throat> so yeah that's cool you got fans now you're getting you're getting uh, uh, no, i have trolls i don't have fans i have troll you have fans <laughs> I have trolls. <laughs> I don't know. I, what if that was really sent in love? You know, what I mean? <laughs> they sent it, it with a note to the company that says this is supposed to be an anonymous gift. Please don't put my billing information in there. It so can't be Nick. I, I no, Nick would have sent me a signed headshot with it. Yeah, I mean, I assume he has signed headshots. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't what the hell have we been doing this whole yeah. time <laughs> like it's oh, great though the problem is like yeah everybody i know could have done it would have owned up to it just to watch me squirm. just to watch you get yeah, mad yeah. Yeah. yeah 
I don't know. Man, whoever did it, they have a lot of patience. Yeah, dear God, it's a slow game. Also, I'm afraid now what could show up in the mail. Yeah, no, now they know your address, man. Yeah. I thought, when I first read it, I thought it said, who sent me the six-foot big, six-foot Bigfoot statue? And I was like, what? No, 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 no. No, please, God, don't do that. (laughs) So I'm thinking is now out on your lawn you have this lawn ornament that's just like this big big foot. That's the other that's the other that I'm also terrified of that, but I called my best friend and I'm like, did you do this? He's like, do what? I'm like, I'm like, did you send me a bunch of spice rubs with Bigfoot shit on it? No, but I should have damn it. <laughs> yeah, that's a great idea. I, I don't know why I haven't thought of it. Piss me um, maybe it I, was me. I, I don't I mean, know. I mean no, I I thought it was because it came from Cal- it came from Washington, so I'm like, aha! It's the it's the interns that have done this. And uh-huh. No, they both said no. <laughs> yes. So yeah, well, I'll have to interrogate one of them. Our secret will die with us. <laughs> we will not. We will not fess up. Yeah. So okay, um, yeah. That's and then for me, E.B. Moralia. <laughs> um, and then, uh, like I said, uh, you know, make sure uh, that. Uh, you go get Justin's book, uh, The Complete Knobtail Gecko. Um, I think you will uh, quite enjoy it. Cool. Um, and what we will say is for me, you can go to rogue-reptiles.com. You can also check out uh, Rogue Reptiles on Facebook.com and Rogue underscore reptiles on uh, Instagram. Uh, so I'm probably going to see a couple people at Oaks this Saturday. You'll see my dad. Yep. I'll, if I see Papa Burke, I'm going to start trying to be like, you know, dude, you you want to get this thing. This thing's awesome. And I'm just going to start steering him towards something horribly dangerous and large. So. Now he wants the yellow and black. Um, uh, I saw him today. He came to see me at work and mm. uh, he wants the yellow and black um, dart frogs. I mean, yeah. What did you call them? Lucamella. Lucamella. Okay. I don't have my address on here. I just have the general variety of it. It's not the whole address. She was wrong. I win. You're um, making me cut out more. I'm doing, yeah, sorry. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> my fault. Oh, I got excited two, for the win. 12. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So you're going to be at, uh, but when this comes out, it'll be after the fact. So. It'll be after the fact. Yeah. I'm going to be there just for a second. Um, and yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll be there and just uh, just to check some some stuff out. If I see you, you know that's awesome. If I don't, then we'll catch you later on. Okay. But uh, and then uh, yeah, uh, I have a couple babies left over. But you know, right now is the time if you want to make a payment plan, do it now. Ain't nothing leaving till March. I'm telling you right now. Yeah, man, we got the, snow for the next two weeks. I got like four babies that are here and like. One of the owners was like, how about now? How about now? And they just gave up on that because it's like, dude, I will tell you when they can go. Right. Not anytime soon. So uh, definitely check that out. Um, and what we'll say is uh, thank you all for listening. And we'll catch everybody back here next week for some more Morelia Python radio. Good night.